Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, joined by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we have another special guest joining us. So, Rich, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is Rich Stanton. Uh, you may have heard of me before on this podcast. <laughs> yep, that's right. Rich is uh, formerly of Edge in Kotaku UK and currently works on PC Gamer. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, which released on November 13th, 2001. Rich is a Metal Gear expert, knows more about it than me and Matthew, so it should be a good chat. This episode marks his 20th anniversary, and uh, it's great to finally have you on, Rich. I was wondering what it was like for you as someone who has had to listen to basically a year of podcasts talking about you but not featuring you. Has that been a strange experience for you? Oh, Not that strange. It was... You know, I quite enjoyed it because, um, you know, obviously uh, you don't see people so much for the last couple of years. I initially started listening because I love to hear Matthew's cheery voice. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was just fun. And obviously, you know, uh, we have a lot, lot of crossover in our careers. So a lot of the stuff you talk about, I kind of know another side of it. So it's, I actually really enjoy that aspect of it. It was, yeah, like my own little Easter egg. Every issue. Every issue? Jeez. <laughs> We should call them issues. That would have been pretentious. <laughs> Rich, I was really curious because occasionally you'll tweet about the podcast, like outrageous things we said, you know, rankings that are incorrect. I was curious about which of our takes, which of the opinions you've heard on this podcast that you disagreed with the most, that you found the most um, outrageous. Oh, there's quite a few things. I, th- I think, you know, Matthew generally has good taste. Uh, you've got pretty good taste. You're you're much better at judging the mainstream, I have to say. You know, when it's, I think all the console drafts, you've really kind of, crowned him so to speak and i i do think the n64 vote was um a bit of a sympathy one i have to say <laughs> oh, um, okay, you know it's uh I, th- I think the the one thing you said that you know made me react like a character in ace attorney that's just been exposed was um when you said uh about pokemon i'm not a fool and i refuse to be taken for one um which for me, Pokemon is, uh, is, is, you know, I'll be honest, it's not like a series I play much now, but I think the first one came out when I was about 14 or 15 on Game Boy. Loved that game. Absolutely loved it to the extent that the next Christmas or whatever occasion it was, I got Pokemon Yellow, which was exactly the same game, except Pikachu followed you around in it. You know, it was then, yeah, the GBA games, the DS games, the 3DS games, I followed it all the way through uh, that series. And uh, yeah, I I absolutely love it. I think it's one of Nintendo's kind of most magical uh, things. So it's quite surprising to me that you, the Nintendo liker, have so little time for it. Mm. Matthew, would you like to defend yourself? Not, not really. I, I, you know, Rich has written lots of very smart words about Pokemon, but I just don't see see that myself when I play them. Um, sadly, I just I, I, it sounds terrible to say like they're infantile. It sounds really judgmental, but that is it is one of the very few of Nintendo's you know widely quite child friendly games that is just too child friendly for me. <laughs> I do think it got, like, there are entries in it that are really messy. Like, I remember on the DS, they were um, they were obviously desperately trying to think of a way to use the touchscreen, you know? And, of course, there's, there's no really useful way to use the touchscreen in Pokemon apart from screen management, you know, your inventory and stuff. Rubbing so a Psyduck. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, if only they'd let you do that, because what they came, what they came up with, I, I can't remember if it's the DS or the 3DS ones, they came up with poffins. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. You had to mix a little muffin for your Pokemon. And, like, if you got it right, the Pokemon would be happy and, you know, do more damage or some something. 
And that was awful. You know, it was like, that was just no fun at all. So there is this aspect to it where it's like, because they got it so right first time, it's kind of the same with Animal Crossing and even Smash Brothers, you know, like those games kind of arrive fully formed. And then the rest of their history is like adding stuff and trying not to ruin the core. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Pokemon's had a much harder time of that than a lot of them, because it's like, it might seem like the solution is obvious, more Pokemon. But then, like, I, I remember uh, actually talking to you in the office. Um, what would this have been? Was it what, which one introduced Rotom? Was that black, black and white? Um, uh, it would have been around then. We def- Rotom was definitely big yeah, presence in Endgamer for whatever I, reason. Yeah, I remember talking to you about Rotom. Uh, for, for listeners who don't know what a random Pokemon is, <laughs> Rotom is... What, what is he like? He's an energy spirit. He's just like a pair of eyes, but he basically just becomes appliances with eyes, which yeah. is just like such crap character design. You know, <laughs> that's that's the stuff that like Rare used to do. And like, so one time he becomes like a fridge with eyes and then like, what what else is there? He becomes a lamp with eyes what? or something. So my grass of Rotom is, is, is pretty messed up because he hosted like the Pokemon section of the magazine. And the kind of running joke was every month he was a different appliance. And now I don't know what appliances he was in the game and, like, what bullshit we did in the magazine. So he was, like, a blender or a whisk. I think he was a fridge in the game. Yeah, what a joke. I mean, that, that's kind of... You're really scraping the barrel there. So, you know, I think I think there's stuff to criticise with uh, Pokemon. But when it gets it right, for me, it, it really gets it right. What about you, Sam? Are you a Pokemon? I'm sort of in between, I think. I think that, uh, well, these days I believe that Rotom would be a like a, I don't know, a, a fucking smart fire or something like that. Just a, a kind of like really out there appliance, so like a Google a, Nest, something like that. A, self, a selfie stick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I actually, um, I'm very big on the first two generations of Pokemon. Then I, I, I fall off of it a little bit when I, um, I bought diamond in 2007 i couldn't quite get into it in the same way and i I didn't know if that was just because i didn't have endless time to throw it anymore and the roster of pokemon just was daunting to me i'm not against covering pokemon in an episode on this podcast next year but that's um that's a big tba it has to be negotiated with matthew castle so (laughs) um but yeah Uh (laughs) and game freak (laughs) i share your um, I share your point of view, though, Rich, that it's very sophisticated RPG for like young people to pick up and play. I mean, it's a good gateway game, right, into the to the rest of the it's, genre. It's a, it's a good gateway game, and there's there's so much stuff you can get into, you know, just in terms of building your team. And like, you you are right in saying it's kind of a, like a simplistic RPG, but not when you get into the maths of it. Um, you know, I've I've never been that obsessive about Pokemon, but I've known people who have been, and the the lengths they will go to to kind of breed a particular type of Pokemon um, are extraordinary to me. The only time I got into Pokemon breeding, uh, I sent Matt the article yesterday, in fact. I ended up just um, breeding loads of the original Starter 3 Pokemon and giving them away. I don't know why, I just thought it was a really fun thing to do, and I had a Ditto, and you can breed any Pokemon with a Ditto. So it's like on reflection, I did look back after a month where this poor Ditto had just been like kept in a room, basically, with a rotating collection of Charmanders, and it's like, oh my god, thank god it's Squirtle next. I need. <laughs> um, sorry, this 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 chat would not meet with Nintendo's approval, would it? You would have completely nobbled Professor Oak's whole operation by, by oversaturating the market. Oh. That goddamn Ditto. 
Maybe maybe we should raise the tone after that. Uh, yeah, I think so. So, um, uh, Rich, tell us a bit about your relationship with Matthew. You were living together at some point, right? Like, what's your dynamic been like over the years? Oh, uh, we. Um, I think Matt joined Future just before me. This this would have been my first spell, his first spell at Future. So around two thousand and seven for me, it was. Uh, yeah, I was on Edge. Uh, he was on End Gamer. Just. You know, I just always loved Matt. I mean, very funny guy. You know, semi-bright. <laughs> kind of, um, yeah, just, you know, I just always got on with him. And I uh, I always thought Matt kind of had a good, he had good taste. You know, some some people don't have taste, you know. It's like, I remember when, uh, when he reviewed Heavy Rain and he bitted its face off. And I was like, yeah, fucking take that, David Cage. And you just kind of, you know, you know someone's a good one when they do things like that. Uh, and <laughs> I can't really remember how it came about, but um, Matt was in a place and had a room. So I moved in with him. Uh, we lived together for, uh, I'm not, it wasn't that long, a year and a half, maybe? Yeah, about that. Which was a very funny time. I particularly remember that I was a terrible cook, but Matt was even worse. And so I felt a kind of responsibility to, uh, you know, sustain him in some way. Otherwise, his dinner <laughs> would just be like five cookies from Sainsbury's, um, <laughs> which resulted in some classics, like the time I took out the potatoes too early to make mash. So we had uh, something that Matt christened uh, slops and hard. Yeah. Uh, delicious. That would be artisan street food. I, I know, I know. I, I kind of missed my era. I, I would say my two big memories of that house are when Fable Fable 2 came in and we had it on the debug machine and Matt could not get over making the characters crap themselves because you hold down the fart emote. <laughs> Look, he's laughing at it now, just thinking about it. You hold down the fart emote in that game and your character follows through basically and you can just do it over and over. And Fable being Fable, all the characters kind of gather around, you know, because they're expecting this giant magnificent fart and then you do the opposite and, well, it's not the opposite. You do an unfortunate thing and they're all like, and I just remember how funny Matt found this. And then after... It's funny. It's brilliantly executed. No, that was the thing, though. After about half an hour, I was like, yeah, this actually, you know, this might be the game of all time. Um, And I, I will say Fable 2... Is one of only two games I ever got a thousand achievement points on because I don't care about achievements at all in games. I never chase them. But there are two games I've got all the achievements on just from playing them. And it was that and uh, the original Arkham Asylum. I suppose as well, Rich, like what are your sort of uh, specialist subject areas away from Metal Gear? Oh, God, dead genres. So <laughs> I particularly like. Or used to uh, third-person brawlers. Real big fan of platinum stuff. I think platinum have kind of slightly gone off the boil recently, but there was there was a period in my life where I I, I really like skill-based games, and I just like games that kind of um, yeah amp up as you get better at them. If that makes sense. Um, so Bayonetta would be the perfect example of this for me, where like you can play that through a normal, and it's an absolutely fantastic experience. Then you can play it through on hard again. And it somehow gets even better. And then if you go to, uh, you know, insert Hideki Kamiya gif here, infinite climax mode, um, (laughs) it's astonishing. You know, it kind of, I mean, it removes the game's main feature, which is witch time in infinite climax. No more slowdown for you. I love, I love that kind of game. I think they're becoming like 
less popular in the mainstream space just because they turn a lot of people off, which is a bit sad. Outside of FromSoft, of course, whose you know quality level is so high generally that they can just kind of do what they want. Resident Evil, always huge for me. Um, anything Nintendo. In terms of, oh God, Grand Theft Auto. I mean, just kind of everything, really. It's like, I, I, I always, I had this period in my life where I had quite old PC hardware. And it ended up with me playing like a lot of classic titles. And, you know, I wrote uh, a history of video games as well. And that was really interesting because I went back and just played a lot of games I'd just read about before. And that that is kind of like a... It's really interesting to see stuff like... Um, so, for example, Adventure, which is a game for the Atari VCS. It's kind of where Zelda comes from. It's the first kind of top-down 2D RPG, but because it's the t- first top-down 2D RPG, your character is a brick, you know. It's, mm. it's literally a, a block that you move around, <laughs> and it does have, like, you know, representations of gates and stuff in it. But um, generally, I'm just fascinated by games, which is particularly useful these days because I, I don't have as much time to play them, but I remain kind of fascinated in the industry. And... I guess I've given you quite a long answer, so I'll summarise by saying uh, if you ask me my favourite game ever, it would be Bloodborne or Metal Gear Solid Five. If you asked me my favourite game when I was 16, it would have been GoldenEye 007 or Mario 64. If you asked me it 10 years later, it would have been Resident Evil 4. So who did you vote for the N64 mini-draft knowing <laughs> that, Rich? Uh, well, you know, I do have a kind of vestigial loyalty to Matthew, like, I, I think it kind of worked against you in this case, Sam, because to be honest, like, in the previous ones, I voted for Matt thinking, well, Sam's absolutely beasted him here. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't feel guilty just kind of, you know, giving Matt the pity vote. Um, right. Yeah, on the N64 draft, it's like, you were you were nasty, I thought. I mean, taking gold... I can't remember how you did it with the categories, but taking both gold and perfect, that was, that was a joke. Matt, should, Judge Castle should have had you in a tank for that. I came up with the categories, so it's entirely my own fault. Yeah. It's Matthew's fault for, like, making the categories cross over so much. Like, putting, like, British game in there and shooter just meant that it was right there on the table. I, I agree it wasn't ethical, but it made for good podcast. <laughs> you should have been, you should have been in the tank with Michael Caine going, now you can't have two rare games. <laughs> oh, worst impression yet. Jesus. Oh, yeah, man, that makes mine look good. <laughs> yes, it's pretty good, I think. Oh, well, I think that's generous, but, you know, that's uh, that's fine. That's not for uh, me to decide. I, um, yeah, I, I was, uh, the last, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about, Rich, was the PS2 mini draft. I thought it was really funny when you were in, like, Matthew's mention saying, ah, oh, you just had to pick Red Faction. You were so close, man. You were so close. Is there anything <laughs> about our draft selections you would have changed? I feel like God Hand would have featured if you were doing the draft. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was, uh, I was in the room when, Shinji Mikami announced Vanquish somewhere in Tokyo. And before he announced Vanquish, he thanked the person from IGN for their God Hand review. Infamously, <laughs> like, they gave it 3 out of 10 or 4 out of 10 and said the camera didn't work. Which is just like, it's, it's a ludicrous thing to say, you know. And I'm not here to, you know, dunk on the reviewer or anything. It's just like, they got it wrong. And we all get things wrong. God Hand would definitely have been on there. I still have Matthew's uh, Japanese import copy, which he gave me 
on the condition he could hold it over me for the rest of my life, which he is continuing to do. Uh, we remember this differently, but anyway, did I did I just steal it? I don't think I did. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not like you were going to play it. Um, yeah, God Hand would have been on there. Uh, I think it's a genius game. Very very funny. I think maybe a couple of his jokes in it might not be too popular these days. That aside. <laughs> Um, so inventive, such a different way of thinking about a 3D beat 'em up, and I think it's much, much more a 3D brawler that like looked at looked at the 2D stuff, Final Fight, Streets of Rage, whatever is your fancy, and tried to build a 3D brawler that replicated a little bit of that. Yeah, so I would definitely have had that. But the PS2, I, I almost feel like that was the easiest draft for both of you. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, Silent Hill 2 is obviously. That's always going to be a, a biggie, just like MGS3. But there's so, so much on that console. One of the great experiences in my life was um, my PS2 went in a cupboard for a few years. I just wasn't playing many games for whatever reason. And I kind of got it back out again at the end of its life. And I was looking at the games and it was just like, here's Okami. Here's Final Fantasy twelve, Here's God of War 2. You know, it was just such an embarrassment of riches for that console. Guitaru, man. It's like, what, what did I think of your PS2 mini-picks? Uh, I, I guess I thought you won, but I voted for Matt anyway. Is the answer. <laughs> I'm, he- I'm hearing uh, PS2 redraft 2022 on the cards. Well, I'd be up for that. I'm always up for talking about the PS2 on this podcast, so that's um, that sounds good to me. What about the N64 one, Matthew? What, no, willing that to one's, that the one's locked away. There's nothing <laughs> else to be done. Oh. <laughs> uh. Okay. I suppose, Rich, like, I, I do want to talk entirely about your career, just because I think that we'll probably have you on again down the line to do some kind of yeah. episode similar to the Simon episode. And also, I'm wary of this podcast running for four hours if we cover your very interesting career and also Metal Gear Solid 2. So why don't you tell us a bit about your your interest in games and how, how you ended up becoming uh, into Metal Gear, I suppose. Definitely uh, the original Metal Gear Solid so PlayStation was kind of PlayStation was a big console um, for me. It was it was the first thing uh, where my dad had gone against my wishes. So when I was a kid, uh, my dad was kind of he was vaguely interested in video games, not that interested, but he'd get me whatever I want, and um, for Christmas, obviously. Um, and I'd always been Nintendo stroke Sega, as everyone was in those days, different in different generations, and I wanted a Saturn. And uh, my dad just said no. He was just like, uh, you're not getting a Saturn. Uh, this thing's called the PlayStation. Sony are behind it, so it's going to destroy Saturn. And it's like, my dad knows nothing about the games industry, you know, but like he was a manager at Woolworths, actually. That was his job. So he did have some involvement in kind of, you know, what was selling and all that stuff. But yeah, I got a PlayStation instead of a Saturn. And then I started to get games like Resident Evil, Final Fantasy VII, Metal Gear Solid, kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't on my radar until I saw it in magazines, which I think would have been probably the official PlayStation magazine at the time, and Edge as well. I always read Edge. And I thought the name was stupid. Um, <laughs> I also thought it looked absolutely amazing. Just kind of the first game I'd seen that kind of topped Resident Evil, I thought. And, uh, you know, just the themes of it appealed to me. Uh, you know, when you were reading about it, 
you know, because this was there was no footage of it. I mean, I'm sure there was somewhere, but you know, I never saw this game in action until I put it in my PlayStation. So you're just reading these descriptions of it, like you know, oh, when you're in the snow, you'll leave footprints, and the guards <laughs> will see the footprints and follow you. And you're like, you know, you're just sitting there as a kind of 16 year old or whatever I was, you know, with your brain kind of going, <laughs> how did they think of this? And then it absolutely blew me away. I'd never played. I'd played games like Wing Commander before that tried to do the cinematic thing. Um, Wing Commander's a pretty decent game, I think. Uh, I've got a bit of time for that. But I'd never played anything that uh, melded it so successfully with uh, a kind of arcade style systems. Mm. You know, like that, that, uh, that first Metal Gear Solid is, you know, it would become, as we'll talk about, a much more simulation-led game, I think. Uh, it's still kind of quite simple uh, in, in terms of the still system then. But the production values, the voice acting, the music, uh, the replayability of it, you know, because um, this was obviously, you know, a time that doesn't really exist for people anymore because there's so much uh, out there in the way of free stuff. But, you know, you got your two games for Christmas and you maybe got one for your birthday and that was it for the year. You know, Metal Gear Solid and the other games I mentioned, I think they became so beloved to me because I really tanned them. You know, it was, yeah, I must have finished that game, you know, 20, 30 times. So, Matthew, what about you and Metal Gear Solid? Like, um, what did uh, what experience did you have with the first game on PlayStation? Yeah, so I didn't play it on PlayStation. I only ever played the PC version whenever that came about. Was it, I can't remember how long after playstation that was but by the time i did play it i'd seen you know i'd read so much about it and i felt like i'd lived most of the game like through games master you know i think i foolishly even read like tips guides that they they published because that was like the closest i could get to it and i figured well i don't have a playstation i'll never get to it so i i kind of ruined a lot of it and the coolest stuff that it did yeah, yeah, play, yeah, played it on PC, but at which point maybe you know it wasn't quite as as exciting a thing. But it's you know definitely into its vibe, definitely into its world, the sort of melodrama of the thing. I think it took me a lot longer to kind of have any proper hook into the series, you know, in terms of being invested in its future, because mm. you know I just didn't have a PlayStation, and it felt like a foolish thing to be invested in emotionally as an like a nintendo guy um so the hype for metal gear solid 2 ended up being off the charts rich what do you remember from from that period where the game got revealed and they were first like showing footage of it do you remember much about the hype cycle oh yeah i mean it was it was definitely the most anticipated thing about ps2 pretty much that whole generation i think i guess there were others that had a lot of hype behind them like shenmue for example but the way this game looked, the first time it was shown, the trailer, uh, once again, it was kind of Kojima Productions. Well, were they Kojima Productions at that point? I think they became it after Metal Gear 2. That particular showcase at E3, it came on, again, I can't remember the magazine. I, I know Dan mentioned this uh, when he was on. Um, I think it probably was PSM I got it from. I had it on a video. And that particular trailer was picked apart so many times. It was kind of similar to a lot of the coverage of Metal Gear 1 in the... Sorry, Metal Gear Solid 1, in the sense that they were again talking about, oh, the soldiers are doing this now. You can see that they're behaving in a different manner. There was, I remember there was some military bit where they do 
you know, a hand signal or something. And I'm sure some magazine got about four pages out of this. Um, and it was just that kind of, uh, it's something I miss a lot from magazines, actually. And, you know, Matthew certainly spent a lot of time in the salt mines on this. But it's like you've got two minutes of a game, say, and that's all you're going to have for six months but it's the game your readers are most excited about. So like that two minutes of footage is going to get absolutely stripped down to its bare bones. And I kind of love that. And it's, mm. it's not, it's not a dying art because um, a lot of websites still do these kind of trailer breakdowns and stuff. But these days it all feels very confected to me. It's all, it's all like, Oh, look at the Easter eggs. Sony and Marvel have put in this new trailer. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's been set up to be analyzed in that way. Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, whereas with that trailer, um, yeah, there was just huge excitement about it. And I think it was also helped by the fact that, like, PlayStation 2, I think it's still the most successful console of all time. Uh, I think it's probably going to be beaten by Switch eventually, or soon, perhaps. I haven't looked at Switch's sales figures. But, um, yeah, it didn't have, it didn't storm out of the gate. Like, it, it had a pretty disappointing launch lineup, I would say. Uh, I remember, uh, do you remember the Bouncer? By Square Enix. Yeah, of course. Um, oh, it would have just been Square at the time. You know, and like there was there was a huge amount of hype for that game. And, you know, it was garbage. Uh, there was Fantavision, uh, the fireworks simulator, which I believe you mentioned. So I, I think a lot of, there were a lot of things leading into it. Um, you know, everyone knew Metal Gear Solid was a fantastic game. Everyone knew that they were being given this kind of mega budget to go, you know, big on the second game. It looked, yeah, just stunning. And, Easily the most anticipated game of the time. I, I can't think of another game I've ever known with quite that level of hype outside of perhaps a Grand Theft Auto. You know, like in the run-up to a Grand Theft Auto, you can't hear about anything else in the games industry. You know, it's it's just the biggest thing on the block. Uh, and that's what Metal Gear 2 felt like. It was just omnipresent, particularly if you were into PlayStation. Mm. Yeah, for sure. It, it felt like it was on magazine covers and around magazines for about two years in the in the run up to launch. It was just omnipresent for sure. I got my uh, first letter printed in Games Master in an issue with Metal Gear Solid Two on the front. <laughs> not, not under my name though. I wrote under a fake name just in case they hated my letter. <laughs> was the fake name Solidus Snake, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think I think you'll find in a Games Master there is a letter from Basil Pesto. All oh, right. Okay. Oh, wow. Hideo Kojima presents a Basil Pesto letter. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, what do you remember of the hype cycle for MGS2? Like I said, you know, I, I wasn't a big PlayStation guy. Like I, I didn't own a PlayStation. We didn't have have one in the house. Um, so you know, it was sort of forced onto me by everyone else's excitement you know particularly in games master obviously wasn't covered much in um mgc for obvious reasons but you know i definitely remember seeing sort of early footage i don't know if it was that very first footage but when stuff started coming out showing off you know gameplay features in the tanker and you know i i think it's a it's a part of the sort of publicity cycle kojima is like very very good at is the bit where he just shows you just a shit ton of stuff that you can do in a game and very very quickly without much kind of sort of faff you know he really hasn't changed like he's he's still you know that is still how he presents his new games you know you just get the demo where it's like here's some ice melting here's me shooting a watermelon and you know that stuff is the stuff that sticks and 
you know you want to play that game because you're like i know this is the game where the ice melts and you can shoot the watermelon uh he's very good at creating like des- like highly desirable little moments like that yeah it's funny how much of it almost was like the entire um tanker sequence is designed as a kind of tech demo for the ps2 in in terms of like when you watch that first uh, mgs2 trailer from e3 2000 it's just bottles being smashed and you know rain effects and all this stuff all this mm. fancy stuff that that section would do and then like the the big crowd of soldiers stood watching the presentation as well even that's in there so it does feel like that whole section is designed specifically to sell uh, to show off what the ps2 can do so i, I was uh, curious rich so march 2001 zone of the enders was released worldwide with a demo for metal gear solid 2 I was wondering if you thought this was a good decision in retrospect and whether you picked it up at the time. The demo seemed to cast a long shadow on the game's eventual release, but I was curious about what you made of this part of the, the game's history. I didn't actually... Uh, I, I was aware of it. I didn't want to buy Zone of the Enders. Um, <laughs> and this was actually a period in my life where... Um, and actually, Metal Gear 2 would be one of the reasons I would return. I'd just gone to university, and um, I kind of just wasn't playing as many games. You know, it was like I, I had a different life... I was working quite hard. We had like a GameCube with the other guys I lived with, uh, which we'd play Smash Brothers and other... We had some terrible multiplayer games. <laughs> but that was about it. So Zone of the Enders was kind of out of the, out of the question. Um, in terms of... I, I don't think it harmed the game really, other than, you know, people reacting in a way they were always going to react. You know, because it, it was very much the whole, oh, you fooled us. I thought this was going to be a game about Solid Snake because of that demo and i think that reaction would have happened anyway i think it was probably only positive and probably helped zone of the enders sell a few more copies did anyone play zone of the enders probably not no like it's funny because the second one was the second one was so such a like a low seller i think worldwide and they never made a third one which made me think that that second one only even existed because of the power of the the demo to sell the first one but um (laughs) certainly had some nice um shinkawa uh you know like mech designs in it but um, yeah, that that aside, it was uh, kind of forgotten. Little industry trick, isn't it? What did Microsoft do it with with Halo Three? Crackdown. Ah, well, Crackdown's pretty good, to be fair. But still, but Crackdown's it, still it's champ. It, you know, it's championed by people who like you know the kind of people who know and have good taste. But it's definitely not. I don't think Crackdown would be uh, any, you know on anyone's radar if it wasn't really for Halo Three. But, well, hmm. certainly not for the two sequels. Ah, well, you know, with um, it's interesting as well because when they did the Zone of the Enders HD collection, I believe that the PS3 one came with a Metal Gear Rising Revengeance demo, so they repeated it uh, years later, which was um, quite a nice bit of uh, bit of symmetry. God, I'm just imagining the kind of Zone of the Enders dev team, like you know, going over to Codge Pro with a little begging bowl. Please, sir, can we have another demo? So it must it must suck as well to to you know that people buy it just for the demo not for the complete game that you have made and worked really hard on <laughs> yeah, yeah. it felt like it was one of the first games i saw properly discounted so the enders as well like i remember it being you know about 20 quid in the game in 2001 like it went down pretty quickly so um yeah i think that was uh that was always going to spike the sort of like second-hand market for that one but yeah so Metal Gear Solid 2 then. So it releases in 2002 in Europe. We're we're doing this to mark the um, the game's uh, American release anniversary. But the hype was just uh, enormous in the in the run up to that release. So 
When the game eventually releases, it's broken down into two sections. A shorter tanker section at the start, which is about two hours long, maybe slightly longer. You can prolong it as, as much as you want, really, if you like experimenting with guard behaviour and playing as Snake. And it's followed by the um, plant sequence on the uh, big shell set several years later after the events of the um, uh, the tanker uh, sequence. So in the first sequence, you play as Solid Snake, the hero of the first Metal Gear Solid. And in the second sequence, the much longer sequence, you play as Raiden, a new character. This is obviously the subject of a lot of uh, a lot of conversation, a lot of uh, discussion. We'll come to the riding part a little bit later, but I was curious, having played it today, I thought I was still really impressed by Metal Gear Solid 2's stealth, and it really represented a sort of big leap on uh, a big leap on from Metal Gear Solid in terms of how guards would behave, first person aiming, the overall sophistication of the sort of simulation, hiding bodies, uh, the alert system was revamped so guards would search for you. I thought it was truly uh, next-gen for the moment. Rich, I was curious to know what you made of it as a stealth game at the time. What were your first impressions uh, picking this up and playing it? Oh, I, I thought it was absolutely incredible. The thing that particularly struck me when I was first playing it was how wet it felt and the way the guards moved. Probably the way the guards moved more than anything else. I got quite into the rain effects in it. Like, I, I would just sit out there kind of... Because I don't know if you know this, but like if you look up in first person, they'll like spatter you more... Uh, they can get you know more intense, less intense. Um, you can obviously get a cold if you stay out in it too long, which uh, happened to me when I replayed it recently. I uh, I was messing about outside in the rain, thinking, "Oh, that's funny. I used to do this twenty years ago." And then I went inside. A guard was walking by, and I just thought, "No problem. You know, I'll just solid snake it." Crouched down in the corner, and as he's walking by, snake just sneezes, and of course the guy turns around, eh, eh, eh. and I was. <laughs> You know, I'm sure that's happened to me before, but I'd completely forgotten, you know, it could happen, uh, which is one of the kind of magic things about these games. There's so much um, there's so much in them that you can't possibly hold it all in your mind at once. Um, but just returning to the, the guards, the way the guards moved in Metal Gear 1, the enemy behavior is pretty simple. You know, they they have their set patrol routes. If they see you, they'll run at you shooting en masse. And they can notice certain things you've done. But that's about it. I, I really think it kind of feels quite arcadey to play now in Metal Gear Solid. With this one, their patrol routes aren't... Some of them have very set patrol routes, but there's lots of other guards around uh, the environments. The way they move together... So there's a brilliant detail in um, when Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance came out. There was a making-of documentary in it, and they were talking about how their military advisor the game basically just drilled the developers and okay if you're with four other guys and you're going to go down a staircase with your rifles this is how you do it and you know basically one person waits at the top of the stairs kind of covering you know everything below the three go down with their rifles in a certain position and the third one i.e kind of the last to go taps the guy who's at the top of the stairs so he knows there's no one else behind him he turns around, checks, and then follows them down the stairs. And if you play Metal Gear 2, this is exactly how the soldiers come down the stairs. You know, mm. it's like, it's authentic because that is what happens. And I'd never seen anything like this in a game before. Obviously, I didn't know that detail at the time I played it. I just knew that there was something very, I don't want to say human, because that's kind of overselling it. But the way they'd made them behave uh, made them... A genuinely kind of scary opponent, I think. Like when mm. they go into, um, you mentioned the way they changed the alert system. Uh, so when they've seen you, 
but you've escaped, but they're still looking for you. They go into what's called clearing mode, which is new to the series. And yeah, they clear rooms, you know, so you're, you're hiding in this locker. And then brilliantly, it gives you a little picture in picture view and you can see them come into the room and like they're all covering their corners. This guy's going to check this. This guy might come over to your locker. And it's absolutely pant wetting, you know. It's um, so yeah. The 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 big first impression for me was the enemy behaviour. I'd never played anything anything like this. So, Rich, today I played through the entire tanker sequence again. I came out with the feeling that it was almost a kind of perfect slice of of Metal Gear in terms of how it it escalates. So you start out in the rain, like you say. The enemies are quite spread apart, so it's easy for you to start to learn how they behave how the, there's like elevation, how if they're high above you, they can't see you until you're closer and all that sort of stuff. Unless you kind of like learn the systems bit by bit. Then slowly you kind of get into like, you know, an area that's got two enemies in the same room and you work out how to deal with that. Then you go into a, a place that's got two enemies and a camera. And then um, you go into like the Olga boss fight, which I only realized what playing it again today that the Olga boss fight is quite a strange fight. She's on like an elevated surface. And it's probably just there to teach you how first-person aiming works because, you know, that's new to this. First-person aiming is new to the series. You could look in first-person in, in Metal Gear Solid, but you couldn't actually aim using that. But I was curious about what you made of that sequence because I love that it ended with the loads and loads of soldiers in the um, watching the speech and it counting down because that felt like a kind of elevated stealth challenge to go out with in that, in that se- sequence. It's not that challenging. But it's a really interesting kind of like finale in terms of it being a, a sort of, you know, a, a big sort of stealth challenge in theory. So I was curious about what you made of that as a self-contained sequence to Tanker. Yeah, I mean, you could almost look at the Tanker and say that's the kind of reason the whole game got made, you know, because it is very much what people in the industry now would call a vertical slice. You know, it kind of perfectly shows off everything the game is about. Works completely as a self-contained kind of prequel. Escalates, like you say, uh, to... I think you're completely right about the Olga boss fight. Yeah, that's training you... Because I'm not sure if you can hit her if you just try to aim in third person, but... You know, I've just never have because it seemed so obvious you were supposed to approach someone sticking their head out from behind pallets or whatever it is. Uh, you were supposed to address them in the first person view. I love the ray sequence. I absolutely love it. So you've played this, right, Matt? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, good. I was just, just making sure I wasn't talking to a nib there. Um, <laughs> so How dare you? <laughs> so you have to take photos of Ray, as you both know. Uh, there are all these troops in the room but what what i love about it is that uh it gives you a t- i think autocon is like i've i've hacked his speech it's eight minutes long so great autocon impression there <laughs> and uh so you get the eight minutes timer so you're crawling around on the floor uh you have to get four shots of ray you have to get it from each side you have to get it from the front and you have to get the marine corps logo on it so they can't deny their responsibility and as you're moving around you're like okay you know, they're looking at the speech man. I'm completely fine. Every so often he goes, uh, well, you must be tired listening to all this talking. Let's do some exercises. And then he'll be like, left. And they all look to the left. Right. They all look to the right. And so all of a sudden, this, what you thought was quite a static challenge and one that has quite a bit of time pressure to it, you get these weird kind of like 45 second breaks where what's happening is comic. Like, it is funny, um, Mm. or I've always found it funny, at least. 
but you're just like, oh, thank God, I've got another 40 seconds to get that Marine Corps logo. I just need to make sure that this guy doesn't see me when he's stretching. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> I, I, I think it's got, like, Kojima, at his best, is able to combine these kind of, like, quite serious, quite weighty challenges where you're like, I'm doing something really important here. And, you know, there's, you know, a really high-quality kind of um, stealth element to it. He's mixing it up as well, giving you things you don't expect, surprising you at the same time. And it's funny. Like, to me, that's... I think there's a lot in Metal Gear 2 where it'd be as good as the series ever got. And that particular Ray sequence, I absolutely adore it. Uh, and, you know, Ray is probably my favourite Metal Gear as well. So the fact that the sequence ends with that amazing kind of Evangelion-like dive into the ocean. That's one of my favourite moments in gaming ever. The first time I saw that thing, my, you know, my jaw hit the floor. Did it upset you when Metal Gear Rex fucked up Ray and uh, Metal Gear Solid 4, Rich? Was that a tough moment for you? Uh, you know, it's it's hard because, you know, Rex is my boy too. And, you know, <laughs> obviously you want to be on solid side. So, uh, yeah, I loved that fight in Metal Gear 4. I thought that was one of the best bits of probably my least favourite game in the series, to be honest. Because Kojima does have this capacity to, like, take the wheels off. You know, these games are quite serious simulations. And then at a certain point, and, you know, Metal Gear Solid 2 is a classic example of this, he basically turns around and says, screw it, let's have some fun. You want to chop people up with a ninja sword? You want to blow up 40 Metal Gears with a rocket launcher? Let's go. And, yeah, uh, I think whenever the series does that, usually it comes off pretty well. And uh, mm. I think I think the Rex Ray fight is one of the best examples of that. One of the interesting things, I don't know if we'll get to it later, or, or maybe you can offer more context for like what it is. But you um, you linked to the um, design document for mm. for Metal Gear Solid Two, which is like a translated. I don't know how they got their hands on it. But it's it's basically like a thirty five page. Kojima's original plan for the game and how how he pitched it to Konami, I guess. Mm. Um, and what's I, I was I was flicking through that today, and what I thought was absolutely amazing was like how many of the ideas it, it was how true the final game is to the plan, you know, in in all the kind of key ways, but also how his thinking in that document is really clearly split between like mechanical evolution like the the ai of the guards and the kind of systems driven stuff but also you know already at the planning stage a really clear idea of the kind of scripted set pieces that he wanted you to go through in terms of like this fight or this kind of room with these kind of numbers in and sometimes it's justified like the you know the i think they talk about the room with all the marines in because you know to show off the power of ps2 we want a room with loads of people in it and that's important um but it it really does show him to be both sort of like they have that kind of mechanical eye but also the kind of choreographed sort of set piece eye you know where you sometimes think is one of these you know i think in my head kojima is more of the kind of choreographed set piece man these days but actually you know the balance is is pretty great in that document yeah absolutely and the i think the thing about metal gear solid 2 and one of the reasons we're still talking about it is that it, the video game industry locks games into a pattern and it is one of the themes of metal gear 2 in you know once assassin's creed was a success i mean obviously assassin's creed 2 was much much better but you know 
from then on, Ubisoft have just iterated on the same game. You know that like those game. I'm not saying those games are literally all the same, but they are very much kind of the same dish. With and I, I think that's something like Kojima's always been very, very conscious of, and like he's not wanted to do. He's never wanted to make the sequel. You know that. You know, it, like if the if the whole game was Solid Snake on this tanker for fifteen hours or whatever, um, you know he it would have been a typical video game industry sequel. And it's kind of it's 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 a bit weird. It's like it almost happens in this era where budgets were getting high. Um, I mean, certainly to the extent he could afford to hire Harry Gregson Williams, but it still wasn't that high that like taking risks was out of the question. Um, and it's one of the reasons I. You know, I love the Metal Gear series so much is like, you know, you just don't get other big budget directors taking aim at Guantanamo Bay or like the invasion of Afghanistan or as in, you know, you reference the design document for Metal Gear Solid 2. This is how I mean, Kojima has his faults. OK, he can be a terrible scriptwriter sometimes, but his themes are really, really prescient, you know, and he was writing the design document for Metal Gear Solid 2 kind of in the months after Metal Gear Solid had become such an enormous success, you know, because it was clear a sequel was going to happen. And he picks up, you know, on the theme of terrorism. And but the, the conclusion he draws from it is that, you know, terrorism is kind of like an unfortunate fact of the modern world. But the real problem is that governments will use terrorism as an excuse to control you, which like, I mean, this is kind of before September the 11th by several years. And it's kind of like, it's all, yeah, it's almost like you could see the future in some respects. I, I, you know, I do think Kojima's kind of got lucky in some respects, like particularly, you know, Death Stranding coming out and then us all going into lockdown. You're just like, God, does this guy have a direct line? (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah. he he not only thinks about the big themes of our age, but he kind of uh, almost thinks outside of them. And he seems to have these kind of like quite, I don't know if you want to call them like naive or pure, uh, but kind of principles like, um, you know, human life should not be controlled. You know, governments are to be suspected. The military should never be trusted. You know, no war is a good war. And it's kind of it's really interesting to me how these ideas come out in different ways across the different games. But the, you know, the prescience of uh, that design document obviously was that he was, he was looking at the internet in the late nineties, you know, when every website was kind of built on GeoCities, everyone was still chatting on IRC. I think Jeff Bezos was probably still in his garage and he instantly saw that the problem with the internet was, that it really was the information age. It's just that there's going to be too much information for anyone to meaningfully parse. And then what is, you know, what is ultimately the value of that, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk about this later, but some of the conclusions he draws 20 years later, you read them and you're just like, yeah, that's the age we're living in. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely come, uh, we'll circle back to the themes uh, a bit later. Uh, but for now, let's focus on the um, the game itself. So, Rich, once you pass the tanker sequence, uh, you get to the plant and Raiden is introduced. I know you have some strong thoughts on, on Raiden, but I was curious about what your take is on the the plant sequence generally and uh, the kind of like role of player expectation in the whole kind of narrative of how Raiden is received. Where, what did you kind of make of that at the time? You mean by the plant experience, like the, the whole thing? Like the whole second half of the game? <laughs> well, I suppose um, like 
I suppose like that versus the first part of the game as a kind of starting point, really. Like, um, I suppose like what your kind of overall thoughts are of of that part of the game versus the tanker. I remember being really confused the first time I played it because I thought I was Snake um, because at the start Raiden comes in with the you know mask, and obviously it's it's obviously not Snake because you can see his blonde hair. The voice acting is different. And I just remember being really confused that this guy was called Snake and had blonde hair. Anyway, you see the real Snake go up in the lift. You go up in the lift yourself and you realise, you know, oh, you know, I'm I'm this guy now. I had no idea it was... I had no idea it was coming. Um, it didn't annoy me. Uh, I have to say, like, I think there's this... Um, you said I had strong feelings about Raiden. I want that to be... I want it to be clear. I don't, I don't dislike Raiden at all. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant character. But I do think there's this kind of like uh, certain critical assumptions just kind of encrust around games. And this idea that like everyone got to the bit with Raiden, saw that they weren't Snake and immediately kind of threw their pad at the television in disgust it is just nonsense. You know, it was like I imagine most players <laughs> probably felt like I do. Maybe that's a bit egotistical to say, but I was just confused and I wanted to find out more. And also like... I think it's underdone how cool Raiden is. You know, the we there are things done to undermine him as a character. You know, the simple fact that Snake goes up in the elevator before him. Snake was there first. Famously, the fact that uh, the first rooftop you get to on the big shell is covered in seagull shit, and he can fall over, and he really pratfalls. You know, it's like, again, it's Kojima going into kind of uh, Benny Hill mode. You know, it's just like pure physical comedy. And there, there are lots of little touches like that. Like, as you go through the game, the game subtly puts Raiden down in some ways. But it does him up in others as well. You know, like, um, I always thought the cartwheel was magnificent. Like, as soon as I found out he could cartwheel, I remember just cartwheeling around that roof phrase, just cartwheeling over the bird shit, like, I'm not slipping this time. Um, <laughs> and you can obviously go straight into the crawl from the cartwheel as well. The other thing about Raiden, and, like, I think this is one of the reasons I always really liked him as a character, even though it's not a positive character trait, is that he's quite petulant. And actually, I think Quentin Flynn, Ryden's voice actor, is a really underrated voice actor. I think when... So obviously, I've been playing the game through again recently, and it's like, Ryden starts to question what this whole experience is from the very start. You know, you can tell from some of the things he says in the Codec conversations that he just think he just knows something isn't up and he's kind of asking the questions the player is asking as well so one of the things about Raiden just going back to the design document for a moment um, is that the kanji for his name originally was basically the Japanese equivalent of you you know he was always intended to be this kind of uh, cipher inhabited by the player if you like a theme that Kojima would return to with great success I think Um, the document translates it as thyself yeah, well, there, there you go. I you mean, play as thyself slash Raiden. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So when I hit the shell, I was enormously confused for the first couple of hours. Then I just kind of got into it. And like, one of the other like slight misconceptions about this game, if you haven't played it, is that people say, oh, there's the Solid Snake chapter in the tanker, and then there's the Raiden bits. But actually, Solid Snake is, like, with you throughout the entire of the shell. You know, it's like, um, I mean, he's not literally with you the whole time, but you see him very early. Uh, You meet him afterwards. He calls himself uh, Pliskin, obviously an Escape from New York reference. 
you know it's Snake, you know, from the start. I mean, definitely if you've played Metal Gear Solid, you know it's Snake. You know, it's, it's David Hayter right there in front of you going, Solid Snake's dead. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I think I'll take a rain check on that one, Dave. Um, so it's a bit like, um, let me think of an analogy. Like, if you had a, if you went in to see a Batman movie, right, and the first half hour was just Batman, but then the rest of the movie was about, like, Batman training Robin to be his successor, and it followed Robin a bit more, but Batman was there the whole time, kind of guiding him and helping him out, blah, blah, blah. Sounds like a good movie. I'd watch that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and, well, that's what this is. You know, like, we've obviously talked about control. One of the other big themes of Metal Gear Solid 2 is passing the torch. You know, like, the, the whole point of Raiden is that this is the next generation, you know, the kind of the next soldier after Snake who is going to be doing the good shit and going in and saving the world from these uh, bipedal nuclear mechs whenever it's needed, you know, and it's about it's about that, that difference between the kind of grizzled veteran that Solid Snake is fighting purely, purely for principle and Raiden who will get there in the end, but at the moment is still a very young soldier. I mean, it's his famously his uh, first mission, isn't it? Yeah, so... I have having just um I've just been playing parts of the the Raiden uh, sections today. I think that you're right in that he's always questioning what's going on from the start. Like that very first conversation with Snake, he's you know he kind of susses out that he's in the dark and that mm. he doesn't he's not entirely clear on what's going on. And then when he meets Ames later on, using the directional mm. microphone, you get the same thing where he thinks he's there because there's a ransom and a kidnapping and the truth is much more complicated and then obviously when he meets the president it becomes it takes on another layer of uh, complication and he is kind of aware I, I agree that he's not like a a complete dud as he's maybe sort of like he was maybe discussed as at the time so one thing i i did feel like with the um with the big shell is that i don't think it necessarily has the same zoomed in detail feel that the the tanker does just because yeah. maybe it's cuz it's like the um the fact that the tanker was created as this little tech demo where it was about like you know break these glass bottles at this bar or like you know this frying pans you can punch or whatever it might be the um <laughs> raven figure vulcan raven figure on the on the ground it feels like a a blanker place to me and maybe it's got less identity to it I was wondering, Rich, if you think that's a fair charge and whether how you think that the tanker and the plant compare as sort of like overall stealth experiences. Oh, it's 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 a tough one. I mean, you're I, I, I think you're right. Generally, you know, the 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 tanker feels like um, such a richer, more textured environment uh, in terms of the interiors and, you know, especially the exterior, like the exterior of the big shell is pretty characterless all you ever do out there is kind of shoot seagulls and do pull-ups um (laughs) yeah it it has this weird kind of like you know we were talking about the authenticity earlier and they obviously decided they wanted to be very faithful to how an industrial plant like this might be built and i think actually in metal gear 5 they returned to that with enormous success in terms of mother base like i think mother base and metal gear 5 reminds me of the big shell like an awful awful lot it doesn't have the character of the tanker it has these slightly weird interiors where it'll have kind of like generic corridors around them. And then it'll have a really little detailed little bit in the middle, <laughs> which I always find quite, kind of quite amusing. And you get other rooms that like they look massive on the map and then you go in and it's like one little gantry around the outside. So, yeah, it doesn't quite have the character of the tanker. The I guess the flip side of that is that when you get to the end of it, 
that you know the stuff that starts happening uh, when the big shell, well, whatever it is, whether it's reality or whether it's not, when everything starts collapsing, then I think you start to get some of that kind of uh, visual spectacle and pizzazz we associate with the series. So it's like it's not it's not quite as simple as like tanker is better than shell. Uh, I think it does have a lot more character. I I also think they wring quite a lot out of the shell out of this kind of like, what would it be like being in this kind of like entirely functional industrial environment with just Mm. like an army out to get you. And again, it's that kind of fidelity to whatever the reality might be that I kind of admire and how they approach the design of that. But I guess uh, one of the things I'd, I'd talk about, I don't know if you were going to ask me about it, it's Fat Man in, in that regard. What do you think the significance of Fat Man is in in the uh, in the course of the um, a Big Shell sequence, Rich? Uh, it's my favourite bit in the game before before the end where it all collapses, basically. Um, I think Dead Cell, uh, Dead Cell is the name of all the kind of bosses in the game. Kojima has this habit of kind of grouping together his bosses, you know, so in Metal Gear 4, you get Beauty and the Beast unit. In Metal Gear 3, it's the Cobra unit. In this one, it's Dead Cell. Um, I think Dead Cell has some real duds. <laughs> Vamp, Vamp in particular is never sat right with me. And a lot of people like say Vamp is the moment where you know Metal Gear kind of went off the deep end. It's like, you know, obviously walking nuclear mechs are one thing, but a vampire? <laughs> get out of here. Um, there's a great there's a great bit in the Substance uh, documentary where Yoji Shinkawa, who is the uh, character designer for the Metal Gear series, is saying, uh, Mr. Kojima uh, came to me and said uh, there would be a vampire in Metal Gear Solid 2. At first I thought he was joking, but then I realized he was serious. And he just gives this thousand yard stare. And you're kind of like, <laughs> okay. Um, I, think, I think Fat Man's one of the exceptions to that. K- a lot more subtle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he should be in Death Stranding, really. Um, so it's a whole little sequence, which I think is one of the things I like about it so much. Like, it really uses the environment, a big shell, in a clever way. So you've just seen, like, a, a SEAL team that came in. You've seen them get wiped out by some of the bosses. Well, Fortune, actually, whose whole deal is that uh, she can't be hit by weapons and spends her whole time going... Won't someone please kill me? Which I find quite annoying, actually, because I'd love to kill her. And eventually, <laughs> um, so you've seen the SEAL team wiped out, and then their bomb disposal guy is left behind, and Fat Man is Dead Cell's bomb disposal guy, and your bomb disposal guy is basically like classic Danny Glover. It's like, like I think he even says, like, you know, I, I had to come out of retirement for this. I th- I'm sure he says something like that. He's he's Pure, pure Danny Glover. Fat Man's his pupil. You're with Snake at this point. He gives you both a little freezy gun. Says, we can't disarm the bombs. There's one on each strut. There are 12 struts total. So, you know, Snake is going to go and find six. And you're going to take the other six. And you have a little... Can't remember what it's called, ionization bomb detector or something. Cool. I think. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, the thing that beeps. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, there's there's two. There's there's one that um there's one that gives you a kind of like gas cloud, and the bomb will be somewhere within that cloud. And then later you get one that um yeah the beeps get closer as you get nearer to the bomb. So you have to find these six bombs. Uh, you can't freeze them when you're in alert mode, or I think you can 
I think you can freeze them, but if you get shot, it kind of resets and stuff. So you don't want to have been seen, basically. So it leans into the stealth element. It makes you go through all six parts of the big shell you've already been through. You have a bit more kit now. You know, you have a few more weapons. You have a few more types of grenades. You have some cardboard boxes. And the positions of the bombs are really creative. Like, I, I really admire Kojima's, the way he thinks about 3D. You know, it was there from the very start in, uh, you know, Metal Gear, where Metal Gear Solid, where there's a bit in the very first area where, what is it? If you walk up somewhere, you can see a ration that you couldn't see, you know, from your normal perspective. Right. He's so good at those kind of perspective tricks and putting something in a place where you've almost looked at it and you've been like, nah, you'd never put it up there. So you go and spend half an hour checking everywhere else and then you're like, oh my God. So the first one, he tells you, Stillman, uh, the bomb disposal guy on your side, he says, there's one here. There's one in the strut we're in right now. It's in a place you'd never think to go. And what he means is it's in the women's bathroom. I'd already been in the women's bathroom because I'm quite a thorough player. (laughs) Um, When you go into the women's bathroom, you can hear the beep. The only way to... So the bomb is hidden on the roof in a gap uh, above a cubicle that you can't see from any perspective with Raiden looking through first-person view normally. So how do you think you see it? How do you think you find it? I genuinely can't remember. It's the mirror. Oh, right. <laughs> you, have to, you, have, you have to stand at a particular position, and if you look at the mirror, you can see it reflected in the mirror. And if you know it's there, you can kind of you know gauge where to aim your freeze spray and get it. But that's that's just an example of the kind of thing where um, he puts he puts these bombs in places. Uh, it almost feels it's a little bit like Miyamoto's great trick, you know, like uh, Miyamoto's games. They you find something and it makes you feel wonderful because you feel like you've discovered it yourself. Mm. And with that particular sequence, like Kijima makes you feel so clever when you've worked out the little trick he's done to hide the bomb. And yeah, it's I, I find that sequence a real, real pleasure. And then you end it with uh, a, the fight against Fat Man, which I think is one of his best boss fights. Uh, so Fat Man is this... Uh, oh, there's a, there's a hilarious line about Fat Man. He does pull them off occasionally. Uh, <laughs> Solid Snake says something like, uh, says he was named after an atomic bomb, but he's just a fat man to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I liked it. Um, so Fat Man is in a blast suit. He's got roller blades on, uh, or they might be roller skates. You're on a helipad, basically some pallets around, uh, storage crates. He roller skates around, he shoots at you with an Uzi, and then he plants bombs as you're fighting him. So it's it's basically got a lot going on, and there's a lot of ways you can approach it. Like the easy way to approach it is to claymore mine the area. So when he tries to roller skate away from you, of course, he goes straight into a claymore. Uh, when he's down on the ground, his big bald head is exposed and you can get a headshot. Uh, normally you can't hit him because of the blast suit. That fight, he actually got me a couple of times because it's got this great balance of, I think I'm getting him, I think I'm getting him. He puts down the bombs and he changes the timers on them and you don't always look. So it's get, like at first you're like, oh, I've got 90 seconds to get that bomb. No problem, I'll just shoot him in the head. And then later on, he's setting them with 30-second timers. So there was one one case where I was fighting him um, last week. I'd got him down to his end health. And my video game brain was just like, I don't need to worry about that bomb. 
I'm just going to blow his head off and the cutscene will play. I shot him. Of course, the cutscene didn't play because this is a Kojima game. And uh, the bomb went off and I lost the fight. Uh, so that was annoying. That hour, hour and a half, I would say. I don't know how long that sequence takes. Actually, I would say it's a good two hours because you you have to spend quite a lot of time thinking about these bombs. Mm. It shows off everything these games are good at. It encourages stealth. It encourages you to explore a 3D space and think about it in a slightly different way. And then at the end, you've got this payoff of a kind of a great boss fight um, where you're using everything you've learned. So when he's hiding the bombs, he doesn't just like leave them on the floor. You know, like he'll put them under a helicopter. He'll put them on top of something. He'll put them under something. uh, He'll put them at an angle you can't see unless you've run around it and used first person mode. So it's kind of like, I, I love that Kojima has the kind of confidence in players to be like, yeah, to, to give you that challenge, you know, to just say you're smart enough to work this out. So, you know, I'm not going to hold back. Yeah, I think that, like you say, the, the really kind of good bit of um, the really good design flourish there is having a boss that kind of caps off the whole bomb disposal idea and like um, encourages you to use the skills you've already done. I would say that like the other bosses in the game don't really do that. They are kind of just bosses in isolation. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, they are. I just want to quickly mention at the end of the Fat Man boss fight, he goes, uh, you haven't won. I've got one more bomb. <laughs> and he does have one more bomb, and you have to find it. Do you remember how you find it? So it's, drag it's, him out of the way, right? Yeah, you've got to pick him up and drag his, his big old corpse out of the way, then freeze it, which I always thought was just you know an amazing touch. I remember being really confused by that the first time it happened and not finding it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they got me. The other bosses, like, you know, I think they're kind of good fights. Like with Vamp, I don't like the character fortune just kind of annoys me like there's there's something really irritating about characters whose whole shtick is just like oh won't sweet death come for me i can't take one more day of this benighted existence and that's her whole deal do you ever properly fight her i thought that was like a sort of gimmick fight that you can't win yeah that's right yeah 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 there's a fight where you can shoot at her all the bullets go around her uh i think you know obviously they were all big fans of the Matrix, so she's kind of the Matrix boss. Um, Did anyone try just punching her? Like, because her little fucking Patriots device can that like deflect punches? That's my question. Because like Snake getting real close, surely he could just like choke her out like every other enemy he kills the game. You know, does that uh, is that implausible, Rich? Do you think a, a punch could be deflected by the Patriots device that she wears? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Patriots go pretty deep, don't they? So I imagine, I imagine they've thought about you know a punch. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's like the sort of the June armor, where you know, bad against bullets, good, great against bullets, but up close and slow, you're, you're doomed. Mm. Yeah. So, um, just to answer your question, anyway, I think um, is it snake uh, snake fights? Snake fights her later, but then yeah. Ocelot kills her. I think. Yeah, that's right. He um, snake. You see, snake. It kind of happens off screen. You disappear up the ladder to fight Metal Gear Ray, and then Snake fights Fortune and loses. In that um, design document, it has two other members of Dead Cell that oh, yeah. aren't in the game. Weirdly, one of them sounds like basically the the the, the really old geezer from Metal Gear Solid Three. Is it the, the end? end? Yeah. yeah, it's basically a prototype for him called the old called Old Man, I think. <laughs> And the other one, which I'm really glad he didn't put in, was was Chinaman. Yeah, actually, <laughs> though, Ch- Chinaman is an unfortunate name, but um, the concept for that guy was um, 
I think he was a weapon stealer or some, something stupid like that as a backstory, but he has a massive kind of Yakuza-like dragon tattoo on his back. Yeah. And I, I think actually he was replaced by the vamp boss fight because the vamp boss fight uh, takes place around water, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. And the Chinaman was supposed to fight you around the pool of water and then he'd dive into the water and when he dove into the water his dragon tattoo would come alive and basically start just you know flaming your ass up and you couldn't fight the dragon so you had to dive into the water and get the chinaman and kind of drag him back to the surface which sounds amazing but is probably why they weren't able to do it you know they had sharks in it yeah they had sharks for the underwater sections and if you bled when you were in there um I, I think Kojima said something like the idea was you had to like deliberately cut yourself to kind of lead them somewhere away from where you wanted to go. And then when they all came to the blood, you kind of <gasps> swum through. And But it, he said uh, playtesters found it too stressful, which, you know, big surprise, really. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't like uh, sharks in games generally. So, Rich, we've covered like the, um, the sort of bomb disposal stuff there. I was curious about what you make of the game's sort of, well, the the uh, big shell sequence is a second half basically because i feel like it stalls a little bit it runs out of momentum a little bit and like piles on the story and then kind of like kicks into life again when you're on arsenal gear at the end uh, what do you kind of make of the second half of the of the big shell i th- i think i think it's the game generally has a problem with where exposition is if you like like uh of all the games that could have used some of their lower like being buried in a menu screen where you could just re- read it when you're interested, this would have really benefited from that because um, it kind of doesn't have an off switch. Uh, it just bombards you with so much tedious exposition at times and it has these kind of very annoying characters. Um, I find Rose incredibly irritating. Just none of the kind of... Um, none of the charm of Mei Ling... It's like it's it's so weird as well that like you're raiding this kind of super soldier saving the president taking down Metal Gear and like you've got your slightly depressed girlfriend on the phone the whole time going like Jack do you remember what day it is tomorrow and you're like fuck off save my game so there are these kind of like there's this combination of slightly unlikable characters I think because the colonel is not very nice in this one either for obvious reasons and then yeah you reach that stage um, you're talking about whatever point it is and you just I think you just kind of put down the pad for you know pretty much 45 minutes at a time pick it up again do a five minute sequence and you know you're, you're back in Oh, there was something really funny um, earlier. I thought, I thought, oh, I, kn- I know I want to talk about Fat Man at some point. So um, I'm going to look up how the bomb placements change. Obviously, you know, I'm sorry, but I wasn't going to play it all through on hard again just for <laughs> that. So I looked at the IGN guide and it obviously been written by somebody who just hated the game. And like, uh, <laughs> so the first line in it was like, once yet another never-ending cinema comes to a close, you'll have to hunt down and find six bombs. And it's like, oh my god, mate, you just wait five hours from now, you know? Um, yeah, it's it's a problem in this game particularly. I think it's a problem in all of Kojima's games that there reaches a point where he's just like, okay, here's the info dump. And there's some great stuff in there. You know, there's absolutely some of the most prophetic and interesting stuff a video game has said so far 
and it's just surrounded by a lot of garbage. You know, I mean, some people might argue that effect was intentional, given the themes. I would say not. Yeah, I think that a big problem it has is that Kojima's constantly trying to show you how much he's learned about how the real military works, and so you get a lot of explanation of really boring uh, kind of like military jargon or real-life training programs and things that are kind of adjacent to Metal Gear's fiction as a kind of like way in. But because there's so much in the way of like US government stuff in this, kind of piled on by Ames and the president... That the then like backs onto the Patriots stuff. It just it, it it just becomes yeah very very messy. And obviously like one of the reasons that MGS three would seem such like a palate cleanser by comparison is it doesn't have nearly as much of that stuff, and it gives you kind of a break. But um yeah yeah sorry yeah it's, no no it's funny you mentioned Metal Gear three in that context because I think I think the whole reason that game is the way it is is because this was the way it was. I can I can only imagine how frazzled the brains of the development team must have been coming off this and Kojima himself, of course, you know, and it's like Metal Gear 3, you know, one of the reasons it's probably, it's probably the most beloved Metal Gear game. It, it is a simple story. You know, it is a probably the simplest story he's told, arguably the most effective. It, it goes for, I would say, more understandable themes in a more pared-back way. I mean, it still has that kind of parallel to real-world events. Obviously, in this case, it's the Cold War. But yeah, I think I think uh, Kojima and his team had to make Metal Gear 3 after making this because, you know, this is such an overreaching game. And I think one of the sad things about it is it's one of the only ones I've ever really seen in, you know, whatever you want to call it, the blockbuster, the AAA space. So many of them play it safe. You know, it's like so few really go out there and kind of like throw everything at it. And I I feel like, you know, Kojima Productions for good or ill always did. And this was kind of, I think this was the biggest statement of intent I've ever seen a developer make really um i can't think of anything else quite like it yeah for sure there's one last thing i want to ask you about before we um move on to uh discussing the themes a little bit more we can get more into the second half of the game which um it's hard to like divorce the themes of this game from the you know the actual <clears throat> game itself in a lot of ways um, here's something i thought playing the um hd version again uh today i think Metal Gear Solid 2 is a slightly better stealth game than Metal Gear Solid 3 because it's easier to read visually, I think. And like you always feel like you've got a handle on how its stealth systems work because there aren't that many of them. They're quite intricate, but there aren't that many of them. MGS3, I think, is a bit more unwieldy because you have things like uh, the camouflage and the kind of healing and stuff like that. I was curious if you if you agreed, uh, Rich, and, and what kind of you, you make of the, the two games comparatively as stealth experiences. Uh, it's... it's... I think it's hard to compare them because um, Metal Gear 3 brings in so many new systems. Like CQC is a game changer. Until this point in, in Metal Gear 2, you know, if you're in close combat with a guard, you're doing a three-hit combo sequence that will knock them to the ground. From Metal Gear 3 onwards, you're able to just grab them, you know, hold them up, interrogate them, uh, knock them out, kill them if you like. So it, I, I actually think one of the things with Metal Gear is that it almost kind of, I'm not going to say, uh, what, what would the right word be? It almost undercuts some of the things it does very well by giving the player more tools. Um, but that's completely in Metal Gear's nature. You know, it's like once you have a tranquilizer gun, then you're making an active decision to shoot someone with a real gun and hear that horrible sound effect and see the blood spurting out of their head. 
whereas before you didn't really have an option. Uh, when you can just sneak up behind enemies and grab them and choke them out and drag them into the grass, uh, yeah, it's it's making it different. It's making it easier for the player. I don't know if that's better. Um, it's, it's it's it's. I just think of them as so different. Cause it's like I agree that you know when you get stuff like the camouflage system in Metal Gear Three, it's a real pain. You know, like you don't mm. want to be going into a menu to be like, oh, I want the crocodile strike now. This fern shade is way off. I did think killing the animals was fun, and oh, that makes me sound like a psychopath. <laughs> uh, I, I thought like hunting your dinner was fun. You know, there was like a real kind of Bear Grylls vibe to that. Uh, you know, it's like and the funny little voice effects, like when you eat a snake, and you know, he's like he really enjoys that one, so he's like, mmm, tasty. <laughs> uh, could have probably done without healing yourself up aspects of it, but it's like I, I think the thing you're tuning into with Metal Gear to is that that was kind of the last leap forward for the series in terms of the guard AI and what that stealth system was going to be. Because when you get to the time of Metal Gear Five, it's you know it's much more sophisticated. It's much better to control. I mean, that was one. That is one of the things about going back to Metal Gear Solid Two now is like that that first person aiming is uh, you know not aged as well as some of the rest of the game. But fundamentally. I think you can make a good argument that the guards in Metal Gear Solid 2 are pretty much the same with less impressive AI as they are in 4 and 5. Um, so it's kind of like he between Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Solid 2, there's such an enormous leap in the fidelity of the stealth simulation. And everything after that, I really feel, is just like addition uh, and positive addition. You know, like mm. I, I, I definitely think Metal Gear Five is my favorite game in the series. But yeah, the reason Metal Gear Solid Two is so important in the context of the series is that this, this is for me the giant leap in that respect. And yeah, comparing it to Metal Gear Three's approach to stealth, it was like I don't think they got it perfect in Metal Gear Three either. I, I see, I, I definitely see what you mean. I think you had more tools in Metal Gear Three, and that almost undercuts it while making it probably a better game for most people, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, I think so. If there's one reason I would praise the um, the Big Shell and Tanker uh, in terms of like their visual design, it is that they are. it is easy to read where your character is at any time, and it is easy to read where the enemies are. And like the, one of the reasons that you know subsistence needed to add that third person camera is because it was it was never really that easy to read Metal Gear Solid Three with that top down camera. Metal Gear Solid Two, you're actually fine with how the camera is placed because the environments feel so calibrated towards it. And then yeah, three because three has that expanded scope. It almost needs to have um, mm. that additional layer of player information, basically, um, because you're in a jungle and you can't see what the fuck's going on sometimes. So. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was just like an observation I had from playing two today. I was actually like surprised by how well the stealth experience held up, you know. So Matthew, I was curious to know a bit about what you made of Metal Gear Solid Two, as a and what point you kind of came to the series because I realised I haven't asked you much about it yet, but curious to hear about what your experience was with it. While I wasn't kind of pulled into the the the, the hype cycle around it, I definitely played this quite early on. I'm trying to think how I played it. We either rented it or something, and I played it in a like a day long session and rather like shamefully i kind of ran out of patience with it just as it gets into like all the 
like the meaty sort of thematic stuff and the kind of big twists and I I distinctly remember the first time playing it, like skipping like a lot of codec conversations, and getting to the end of the game and not really having any clue about like why I was fighting this dude in the flaming remains of New York and just being like, well, that was dumb, even though I'd skipped like all the context for it. It's weird, I, you know, what you were saying about two versus three. Like I I really love the clarity. And I almost like the straight lines of everything in two makes it a very simple sort of stealth game to play. Like it's, um, you know, the, the big shell and tanker are almost have more in common with like the VR missions mm. in terms of like the visual design. And then all of a sudden I found three quite overwhelming and I, I felt very bad. I was bad at three for quite a long time, like where two I kind of felt like a, a, a pretty cool spy from the off and throughout. I only really remember this game being set pieces, and I think that sort of goes to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the big shell is this more functional space, you know, it doesn't have as many, like, weird and sort of characterful rooms to it, maybe as as some of the other Metal Gears, you know, especially coming after the tanker, which I'd spent, you know, tens of hours exploring from the Zone of Enders demo, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I, I don't know if I've spent a third of the time in the big shell as i did in that tanker even though the tanker is technically a much shorter part of the game yeah for sure i think one of the odd things is it's like it's their first attempt at building a kind of a big coherent environment because it's like if you look at metal gear solid i mean shadow moses is amazing it's also like wildly all over the place you know like think about like psychomance's like incredibly opulent office that's just like next to you know, I think, it, is it next to a kitchen or something? And then you walk out of Psychomancy's office and it's like, are you in the snow again? And then there's like a lava works shortly after that. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's just jamming together. And, you know, I think in the PlayStation era, you could, uh, PlayStation 1 era, you could do that without anyone raising much of an eyelid. But it wasn't, it didn't approach Shadow Moses in quite the way I would say that like Resident Evil approached uh, the Arkley Mansion. Um, and I think with, Metal Gear 2, that was one of the kind of big objectives, was to build a kind of more coherent environment. Um, And it's, yeah, it's one of the things about the Big Shell that, like, you kind of touched on there is, you know, there is always that open question, is this a VR mission? You know, and I think elements like its kind of very clean, simple, straight-line design, it, it depends how far you want to go down the rabbit hole, you know, whether you think that's kind of intentional or not, whether you think it's kind of cluing you in the whole way along that this might not all be real um but i think it's kind of possible you know given given that he knew this was where they were going yeah Uh, absolutely mm. yeah i think i agree with you matthew Uh, you know what i realized playing it again today as well was how much like dialogue from the tanker sequence was burned into my head like the whole speech from Dolph or whatever he's called, the the dude giving the speech, and then um, Olga as well saying, uh, "Conflict and victory were my parents." And I was like, "How is this? <laughs> like this is scorched into my brain." Like I've heard that probably about two hundred times just from playing the the demo over and over again. So yeah, that's um, that's kind of a bizarre thing. But um, I think that's a that's a good point to um, call a break, and then when we'll come back, we'll try and tackle this game's themes because holy shit there's a lot to get into there so let's take a quick break and we'll come back (laughs) 
Welcome back to the podcast. So, in this section, we're going to talk a bit more about Metal Gear Solid 2's themes. It's such a big part of the game that we couldn't... It was it was tough to try and break down the sort of game part in one section and the themes in another, because they're so interlinked, as I said earlier. But um, I, I did kind of, like, roughly want to uh, sort of, like, break them apart so we could focus on the stealth stuff and um, the overall sort of, like, arc of the game design before we get into this. So, first up then, uh, Rich, really curious to know... This game obviously mirrors the original Metal Gear Solid by by design, and it's a sequel that comments on sequels. I was curious if, coming into this the first time, you suspected this at all before the big reveal, if you can even remember it's been so many years, and kind of what you make of that notion generally as a sort of conceit at the heart of the game. It's, it's definitely something I came to appreciate about it kind of over multiple playthroughs. You know, it's like the first time I... The first time I played Metal Gear Solid 2, I always tell people it was just like in a fog of confusion, you know, uh, a fog, a fog, whatever one of those kind of miasmas is where you can't quite work out (laughs) what you're doing, but you're just moving forwards anyway because you think you like it. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, in terms of its big themes, when I actually started thinking about them was when I got more interested in the game later on my first playthrough, I, I I didn't really notice the parallels to Metal Gear Solid, you know, apart from the very obvious ones, you know, like the torture sequence. Um, there's a couple of things Snake says that are the same. Um, when I when I really got into Metal Gear uh, Solid, which was probably probably after Metal Gear Three and before Metal Gear Four, my my kind of I'd always loved the games and at that kind of point that was when I started like really reading into Kojima's history and the series history. I started like looking back through the scripts and taking it very seriously. And I think that's when you notice this stuff, you know, it's like um it's one of the things that slightly bothers me about this and it's the same with Dark Souls as well. Like the genius of Dark Souls and the genius of Metal Gear Solid too is that it can be played as a straight-up action game. You know, you, you can play Dark Souls, you can get to the end, kill Gwyn, and feel that you've done the right thing. I mean, you might wonder why your guy's gone up in flames, but it like it fulfills what it needs to do for someone to play it and just be like, yep, yeah, that was a good tri- AAA action game. I think Metal Gear 2 does those, uh, th- hits those beats. And then the, the, the paralleling of the first game is kind of like, I think it's more subtle than a lot of people make out now, you know? So when you're talking about, like, the bosses, Dead Cell, for example, mirroring elements of Metal Gear Solid bosses, that is true. At the same time, they are their own creations. You know, so uh, we talked about Fat Man, uh, for example. Uh, Fat Man is often compared to Vulcan Raven uh, from the first one. Vulcan Raven, you fought him in uh, an environment filled with shipping containers, and he had a massive uh, uh, chain gun. Um, And he would walk around, he was slow, and you would have to get behind him, flank him. Fat Man is a very similar environment. Fat Man, unlike Vulcan Raven, is moving fast and he's making you move fast because you have to run around and get the bombs. So you have this kind of thing where... And Vulcan Raven, obviously, there's a little tribute to him uh, early on in Metal Gear Solid 2. You see a little figure of him. Or, sorry, you see a shadow in the tanker, which you think is him. And I think it stops for a second. And David Hayter, you know, chews the scenery and is like, Vulcan Raven? (laughs) <laughs> um, and then you realize it's a little figure. So it's it, it does mirror it 
but it's um I I almost feel like the the more appropriate word is palimpsest. You know, it's it's written over the top of Metal Gear Solid. Part of that is the sequelitis you're talking about. Like I think one of the things Kojima resents from sequels is that whatever players say they want, what they actually want is more of the same. And he doesn't want to do that, but he knows that people want to see Solid Snake. He knows that people will expect another Psycho Mantis. And that's kind of the tension. I, I, I think that's the tension in the whole game. I think um, mirroring it is like a bit strong, but it's something that is more subterranean, I think, than it's given credit for. It's, it's not, and I've been guilty of this myself in the past when I've written about it. I've said it like this is the most obvious thing in the world. And actually, I don't think it, it it's obvious when you point it out. Let me put it that way. Mm, yeah. I agree with you. I think um, the most obvious beat I got from playing it again today was the vamp sequence, which is obviously meant to, you know, parallel the uh, Grey Fox kind of like murder and murders in the corridor. That's very obvious. But I think that there are several things in it that throw you off. The presence of the real Solid Snake, obviously, that's um, that's something that kind of like adds a bit of early confusion because you're kind of like um you know this this other character's joining you along for the ride there's not really a parallel to that um the bomb disposal thing and then like um Steelman as a character there's not exactly a parallel to that really mm, in Metal, mm. Metal Gear Solid and like um obviously it is built into the plot that you know uh, you are undergoing an elaborate simulation at the um behest of the patriots uh, this uh you know essentially this solid snake simulation that's at least part of their their overall plan but yeah i think i agree with you i don't think it's actually like i don't think i thought about it at all when i first played it i think as a player my first experience with this game was kind of like running headfirst to all this like conspiracy storytelling and trying to pass well who are the patriots and then having my mind blown when at the end i learned that the um wise men's committee all died a hundred years ago and thinking what the fuck does that mean that was the those the parts that i kind of like was stuck onto i was really fascinated by the mystery of like Ryden not really knowing what the mission was and what was really going on at the heart of the um the big shell all that other stuff comes i've kind of like picked it up from readings of it of it i suppose like um you know you read you read this stuff and you go back and you play it and you see what you can pick up on beats wise um yeah so there are some obvious bits and some not so much this, so uh, um, this may be a really stupid question and may completely undermine my entire presence on this podcast no go for it um what happened to the raiden in metal gear solid 2 that's real right in the real world <laughs> <laughs> uh yes yeah he's like He's a he is a real you know a real soldier. It isn't, he's, a, he's, it isn't of it isn't all virtual reality. No, but the the whole thing is staged essentially. Like every every person staged, has their part. Right. Yeah, so it's like a, it's a staged operation essentially. There are some parts that are you know like the arrival of the real solid stake is one of the twists to it. Like that's not supposed to happen. That's not part of what the um what's being simulated. But Raiden is a you know, like uh, you learn later on, was a child soldier. Then he was trained in VR as well, and then like um, then this is his first proper uh, quote unquote mission. Right. And then yeah, and then the mission is designed to mimic the Ark of Shadow Moses. That is worth saying for people listening to this podcast who haven't yeah, played this game. That's for a long time. that's always thrown me a little bit. Uh, I think because of that initial playthrough where I skipped some of the stuff towards the end, and then I was like, did any of it happen? I don't really know. I mean, you know. that is that's my reading of it. Rich, is there any? Is that correct, or is there? Uh, I'd, I'd say broadly. I mean, it's one of those games where there's so much in it that I think you probably could make a good argument. The whole thing is a simulation. Uh, you know, I I don't believe that, but like, uh, 
if you went by the front end, for example, and um, the way they, it uses AI, it kind of is. So I don't know if you recall, but um, when you're in the big shell, each strut has a little map terminal. So you've got to find the map terminal and log on to it, and then you've got the map for that area so you can see where guards are looking. And every time you do that, it's got this very interesting little touch where it takes you out to the options menu. Like it gives you the the game's option menu when you log on to the terminal. And you're like, why are you seeing this? Why is it asking me if I want to turn blood off? You know, why is it asking if I want subtitles on now? So there's all these like little subtle things where it's like constantly using the video game interface kind of within that world to make it seem very video gaming. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think the whole thing is a simulation. It, it is a somewhat manufactured event that doesn't go as it is supposed to go. <clears throat> but it's, I mean, what can you say? It's like, it's a, you know, I don't really want to swear, but a, a cluster F uh, in certain respects about whether it's real or it isn't. Um, I'm curious, have you ever played uh, The Big Shell without playing the tanker first? No, I don't. I don't think I have. Matthew, have you? I didn't know. Is that? I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. yeah. So at the start, you can select either the tanker or the big shell. Um, oh, imagine skipping the tanker. And uh, <laughs> obviously, if you select the tanker, it just naturally flows onto the big shell. It doesn't take you back out into that menu. But if you select the big shell first, then you, it starts there. You'll have a different conversation conversation with the colonel when Ryden comes out of the water, and he basically basically if you've done the tanker mission. He says, uh, you know, you're familiar with this area because uh, you did uh, the tanker mission uh, in VR. And if you haven't done it, he'll basically say the opposite. He'll say, you know, you don't know what went on here, but there was a mission involving Solid Snake. Forgive me, I can't remember the exact dialogue. Uh, which implies that the tanker is a VR simulation that you're actually playing as riding, which hmm. I think is probably the case. And that when you think you're Solid Snake, which would be very Kojima, you're actually riding thinking he's Solid Snake. But I'm conscious as I say that, like, I don't want to get too far into the fields of wankery here. <laughs> um, because a lot of the game is about, you know, uh, you know, like uh, Solid Snake calls riding a virtual grunt of the digital age. It's, it's not just about the game setup itself. It's about how video games create a particular idea of war, I guess you could say and spoon feed it to people who then think they know what war is like you know and you couldn't have a more perfect example of course than call of duty and its various deals with arms manufacturers so again you know another very prescient thing for konami and kojima to be taking aim at so how best to explain what happens in this story so in the um where the tanker sinks and uh ocelot steals metal gear ray that's the first part of the game that's that's Um, liquid snake that's liquid snake sam it is, yeah. So you were saying that... Um, that's that, that awful, that twist. Jesus. You were saying the vamp breaks the reality of the game. I mean, I would say that as soon as you see the liquid snake arm take over Ocelot, it's, you're immediately like, what the fuck is going on? Um, <laughs> they would kind of retcon that in there with Metal Gear Solid 4. Kojima has made some stinking narrative decisions over the years. <laughs> that is the worst. And even he realised it. Because he, he doesn't often retcon his stuff. You know, he'll try and find a way to make it work. But, mm. like, Ocelot becoming liquid because he was taken over by his arm and getting this awful, like... Like, Liquid Snake always reminds me of, like, Roger Waters, you know, the Pink Floyd frontman. <laughs> you know, and I love Pink Floyd, but I always imagine when he's kind of going, 
Sneak, you won't stop me now. In his slightly posh voice, it's like, yeah, um, <laughs> it was awful. Uh, I think in Metal Gear 4, they retcon it, and it's like, oh, Ocelot was just pretending to be Liquid Snake to get into Solidus's good graces or something like that. It's horseshit. I mean, it's, I love this series. I love the themes. The, the whole Liquid Snake, Ocelot arm thing, just awful honking man it really is so yeah i mean i love your impressions by the way rich like had, <laughs> i'm sorry like, you know, it's like your otacon your otacon was like gilbert Gottfried, which i thought was <laughs> i thought was great i enjoyed that a lot um yeah they they're just really they're really just all over the shop but i'm having a great time it's good um <laughs> I, I i personally think i agree with you there's something about the liquid snake voice that makes more sense in the ps1 era but doesn't quite make sense in the ps2 era coming out of Oslot's mouth he's just like brothers how long is it been? it's just a, such a silly voice and um yeah uh shout out to cam clark there but um so this story right the tanker goes down ocelot steals the um metal gear ray from the military they pin it on snake and otacon essentially um their organization for uh, philanthropy and then um from there it's like it cuts forward two years raiden appears at big shell big shell was essentially created to uh cover up a kind of like fake it was it was essentially essentially it's like a front for covering up like an oil spillage that happened but as actually the uh site of Arsenal gear, which is a kind of like a U.S. military weapon uh, that contains like a, a, an AI created by an organization known as the Patriots, and um, basically, while you initially think that Raiden is there on a kind of like sincere mission, there's like a ransom. It kind of unravels, and it turns out that you are there as part of this uh, S3 plan uh, created by this AI, the Solid Snake Simulation. However. It's later revealed that the Patriots have a much wider plan of which you're just one small part, which is uh, the S3 stands for Selection for Societal Sanity. And the AI's plan is to essentially filter out the junk of the online information age and control human thought by collating information that it deems worthy, uh, removing free will in an effort to uh, basically like evolve mankind by, you know, collating what they think is important and telling people what to think, essentially. And so that's a really kind of like haphazard way of describing what's going on in the story. But, you know, I can't say that the game does a better job because it's, um, it's so kind of like all over the place. But there are parts of this um, that's in- that, you know, is incredibly prescient that has been praised in retrospect. And it definitely seems ahead of the curve when it comes to the idea of fake news and algorithms and how information is presented to us. God, where to start with this, Rich? Um, I suppose, like, should we start with the design doc and wh- how it kind of lays out what's important here? No, no, we can't. Because I haven't read it recently. <laughs> Good, that, that's fine. Um, yeah, like, why don't you? Um, why don't yeah. you just kick off with uh, some thoughts about the, all that? Then I suppose. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Where to start? Indeed, there's a great bit. Um, I believe it's on the tanker chapter uh, during a cutscene. It kind of reminds me of that um, bit from Other M, where the guy's helmet pops up and he says, "Remember me?" And everyone's like, "Who?" And a guy just goes, you mean the lali lule lo? And you're like, what? Like, what, what is that? And you realize kind of there's there's some wacky stuff is going to happen here uh, quite early on. In a weird way, like, you know, people find it hard to agree how much of the design of these games is intentional and how much isn't in terms of, you know, do its flaws, you know, are they somehow sometimes deliberate you know uh a lot of people have called this postmodern game you know which 
would imply, I'm not going to get, get into the whole postmodernism discussion, that, you know, when we're talking about it having too many codec chats and uh, taking you out of the game for hours, and then its theme is information overload, uh, that it's doing that deliberately. Um, as I as I said earlier, I don't necessarily buy that. I think that's just, you know, it's one of Kojima's flaws. He's always needed, you know, a copy editor, basically. I'm open for hiring, by the way, Codge Pro. Uh, Death Stranding 2 could be so much better. But, um, yeah, Sorry, it's... <laughs> well, if we mention him, he probably will. You know, he seems like quite a vain guy. I mean, it's I've, mm. I've never known a developer... Like, and again, with that, it's like, is stamping Hideo Kojima everywhere, is that like a joke that got out of hand? Or is he like, I made this, I am Hideo Kojima. I mean, I don't imagine, there's another fantastic impression for you, Sam. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, when you get to Metal Gear 5, and it's like, it feels like every 10 minutes, it's like, you know, directed by Hideo Kojima, written by Hideo Kojima, Story planning, Hideo Kojima making tea at half ten on a Tuesday, Hideo Kojima. Um, so it's it's hard to tell how much of the kind of surfeit of information in the game and the way it serves it to you is part of the theme. It gives you a lot of information, is uh, what I can say, and it's a little bit like um, this. Kind of relates to something you were saying earlier, Sam. But it's I find when or I find when I was going through Metal Gear Solid Two the first couple of times. The experience was almost a little bit like um, watching a David Lynch film where, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest Lynch fan in the world, but it's like, to me, his work very much seems to be these kind of atmosphere pieces where you pick out, because everything that's going on is so bizarre, you pick out a couple of things in it that you try to understand and they're your like anchors to trying to get some grasp on the rest of it. And that's certainly how I felt kind of working my way through Metal Gear Solid 2. You know, the the first time I finished it, I, if somebody had asked me what, what just happened in that game, I would have been like, I spent a lot of time on an oil plant and then I killed about 40 mechs and 100 <laughs> men and the president at the end. Um, and... You know, to be fair, that that is what I did. I was suppose I was I was just curious to know what you make of this game's uh, prescience. Like, um, uh, you know, that's like a yeah, such a massive part of why it's remained in the conversation over the years. What do you make of how kind of like spot on it, it is about you know our current moment? It's incredibly prescient about the fact that information is power, and in an age where there is a surfeit of information, control of information is power. There is so much out there that no one person could ever possibly parse them parse it themselves and we rely overwhelmingly on gatekeepers uh, whether that is large media organizations whether that is your favorite forum whether it's twitter whether it's facebook all of these things in some different way uh, control and present information to you and you may look at an an organization and think, okay, they're well-intentioned, I trust them, I go along with that worldview. At the same time, you are still putting yourself in a, I don't want to use a loaded term here, you're putting yourself in that particular walled garden. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the things this game is incredibly prescient about is that I think, I think it literally says at one point, everyone withdraws into their own small gated community 
I think that's one of the things the the colonel says when he's kind of having his AI breakdown. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's what's happening. Uh, I think we see it all over the place in all sorts of contexts. I think in a weird way, the kind of opening up of society in the information age has made a lot of us much meaner. I think weirdly, it's made a lot of people kind of stupider. And you also have to look at like stuff like, um, okay, so I guess a good recent example uh, would be uh, the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, so in the UK, we've had our vaccine rollout for ages. I've had my two jabs. I'm sure you upstanding citizens have too. Obviously, there are the anti-vaxxers. Nobody likes the anti-vaxxers. If you whoa, see... Whoa, whoa. Unless they like this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. Anti-vaxxers <laughs> who listen to the back page pod. Now, those guys yeah, might I mean, have like... a natural immunity. <laughs> don't, give, <laughs> um, don't give us one star on Apple. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. They probably would as well. You know, they're very online people. However... Our, our reviews in Florida are about to fucking dip. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so if we, if we say that, you know, we three gentlemen think anti-vaxxers are generally quite silly and probably you know not having a good effect on society at the same time when you see that information on facebook now it will come up with a massive you know disproven label uh twitter has these now as well where when what they consider to be misinformation is being shared around they'll label it and obviously that's very clear cut when it comes to something like the coronavirus vaccination you know i think anti-vaxxers are stupid i think most people would probably agree that those sites labeling that stuff as misinformation is a good thing. Uh, at the same time, it's a just an example of the control that something like Facebook has now, where if a narrative can become powerful enough, and it doesn't have even necessarily have to be a big narrative. You know, I'm sure there are lots of ones going on right now that we'll never be aware of. It can become true almost by default, simply by a gatekeeper saying it is true. You like know, everyone hates Raiden, for example. Yeah, indeed, indeed, perfect example. So this, this, this to me is kind of the most prescient aspect of it. That you know, when when people were kind of talking about the internet and were a bit more starry-eyed about it, you know, we very much had this idea that uh, information would free us that, you know, the truth shall set you free, so to speak. And at one point, I think another one of the things the colonel says in his AI rant is that the the world is being engulfed in truth. And then after that, he goes on to cite The Hollow Man by T.S. Eliot. Uh, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Now, I'm sure as a good literary man, Matthew, you know that poem very well. Uh, the Hollow Man uh, famously begins... Uh, I'll, I'll do an impression of T.S. Eliot, if you like, actually. Oh, nice. He's, he's, <laughs> highbrow. Yeah. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. And so the the reason I think Kojima is referencing Eliot at that point is that uh, Eliot was kind of talking about it more in terms of the horrors of modern society. He was quite a weird guy, Eliot. Amazing writer, but uh, a real oddball. So Eliot was talking about us being stuffed but hollow in a different way. And Kojima's talking about us just being stuffed with meaningless information that takes over our whole lives. And yes, there may be truths among it, but it stops us actually, you know, I guess, you know, there's no way to end this that isn't really trite, but, you know, finding our ultimate truth. You know, it's basically that I, I, I think he's just spot on in terms of how internet dynamics work. And I think a lot of these social media companies are still struggling with it themselves. You know, it's like we recently had the Facebook uh, 
whistleblower leak, whistleblower leak. That's a bit of a tautology. Talking about how Facebook knows Instagram is harmful in some ways for its users, many of whom are young women, and it doesn't know what to do about it. You know, it's like Instagram's a very successful product. It wants to keep it running. It probably doesn't like the fact that it seems to be harmful to users, but it's not going to shut it down and it doesn't know what to do. And it's not regulated from the outside. Absolutely not, you know. And But yeah, I think Kojima was absolutely spot on. Does um, Metal Gear Solid 2 end with just a, well, that's the way the world is, good luck with it? Is it does it sort of, like that's sort of my memory of it in that the, the you know the person you're fighting is is you know fundamentally against all this too right yeah that's like the final part of their plan is that you you kill Solidus essentially and that's like um, you're kind of taunted into doing it and like held ransom because um, you know basically that they have uh, Olga's child Sonny who you've uh, pledged to go and save basically so you are blackmailed into um, into doing that but the the way it resolves it Matthew is that. Raiden essentially decides, you know, uh, while talking to Snake, that he will decide what to pass on, as as opposed to this Patriots AI deciding what people right. should think and what should be passed on. And that's kind of the theme of the game, sort of wrapped up. Is that right, Rich? Yeah, and he um, he chucks away your name as well. Uh, yeah. So at, at some <laughs> point uh, early on, you're asked to enter your name for the for his dog tag, and there's kind of this uh, moment in the at the end of it which is taken as very symbolic where Raiden kind of rips off the dog tag with the player's name on it you know the individual that's been controlling him the whole way through tosses it away um, which ties into kind of like not just the theme but you know the there is a level to this where one of the points of Metal Gear Solid 2 is that you're being guided through your life by forces you don't understand and they are controlling you and what a perfect metaphor a video game is for that you know it's like Mm. kojima is the puppet master and raiden is the puppet but so are you you know you are following the path that he's set you are going to the discoveries he's prepared for you you know whenever he says jump you know you might not ask how high but you press the button so it's kind of like it's a perfect match of theme and uh i don't know what you want to call it format mechanic medium perfect match of theme and medium so i suppose like just to kind of like really boil this down the part where it really kind of clobbers you over the head with um how prescient it is is when the ai's rant uh, says you exercise your right to freedom and this is the result all rhetoric to avoid conflict and protect each other from hurt the untested truths spun by different interests continue to churn and accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness and value systems uh, then the Rose AI says, everyone withdraws into their own small gated community of afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. And all of this is in the um, design document from the start. Like it's um, <laughs> a big part of like the aim of the story is that you are constantly having your head spun by betrayals and sudden reversals to the point where you can't really tell fact from fiction. Um, every character lies, and um, not everything your eyes tell you is the truth. What is real and what is fantasy? Can one tell the truth even while inside a virtual reality? Is what we call reality the truth? So, all there from the start. And um, ironies aimed at the digital society and gaming culture is what that design document says. But I was curious, Rich, because so much of this is fed to you via, like, 
big lengthy cutscenes right at the end. I mean, the, the, some of this stuff is is gently embedded throughout. But I was wondering how elegantly you think the themes of this game, the ultimate themes of this game, mesh with the the game itself. You you seem kind of like to, to praise it there, but it still feels like a lot of it is kind of like bolted on in the last two hours. Like I don't I think mean, it's elegantly woven in. But I was I was curious about what you made of of how those two things coalesce. I will say that you're like you're literally a skip button away from like ignoring the entire like message of the game. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, you're right. It is inelegant. It is lopsided. I, I think it took Kojima until Metal Gear Five really to tell a story elegantly. Like I, you know, I think that's got a lot of tosh in it as well. But it's much more. Uh, it's much more. He's got a lighter touch by that point. I think. I actually think Ground Zeroes might be his best work narratively. Controversial opinion, I guess, but it's. Um, I almost feel when he leaves the player alone as much as possible and uh, lets the themes and the mechanics do the talking, the games are much stronger. And yeah, it's it's definitely one of the flaws of Metal Gear Two that you know. And I'm sorry, I keep on calling it Metal Gear Two. By the way, um, is that yes, it has these fantastic themes. At the same time, what do we hate as people who love video games? We hate games that are just constantly taking you out for a boring cutscene or a codec call. And it's it's a criminal. You know, this game is a criminal for that. It, it does it so often, and particularly at the end, where I really think the balance is way off between these massively exciting kind of set pieces. I mean, I, I really love particularly the ray battle at the end of it because it's just like you know in in the first metal gear solid it felt like an enormous achievement to face one metal gear and somehow come out on top uh and in this one it's just like here you go here's 40 of them got a rocket launcher good luck new kid um so it kind of oh god i i i think it kind of just about gets away with it because the set pieces between it are so good, I would I would never disagree with you though. I think yeah, just the ratio, just the ratio at the end of the game. Uh, there's so much exposition dumped on you that I think could probably have been either in optional codec calls or seeded a bit sooner. But it, it really just and I I guess I can see why he did it. You know because there are clues that you're in a simulation, but he doesn't want to kind of drop the hammer if you like kind of too early Mm. but the price of that of course is that when he does do it he's got to kind of drop the hammer 50 times to make sure you get the message Mm. i think that one one strength that the final stretch of this game has is the shift in location the arsenal gear uh area is very unsettling it's a very uh, quite horror infused space to be in it's not a nice place to be at all and obviously it's, it has all these kind of like body part names to all of the different uh, areas and um yeah you're being has this you're being shut out you go through the <laughs> digestive system and you come out of the colon yeah. it's shitting riding out <laughs> he, he didn't write that in the old design document <laughs> maybe it's in a separate pdf matthew i don't know but um yeah so 
yeah, I, I find that whole sequence is very, very powerful. And the game comes to life again, jolts to life again, as you have this final sequence with Snake running down this corridor. And you have, uh, you've been given the high frequency blade at this point. So um, I believe in your uh, Eurogamer piece, Rich, you, you talked about the significance of the sword as, as Raiden kind of like discovering his identity away from Snake. You wrote that six years ago. I don't expect you to remember it. But like, um, yeah, I was uh, I was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on, on that kind of decision to give Raiden his own sort of like weapon at the end there and how that kind of like last set piece plays out generally i think i think it's it's an interesting moment because clearly kojima thinks about everything as being quite symbolic and up until the blade um raiden is always using snake's weapons um he's all or you know the enemy's weapons he doesn't have anything that's kind of his own and yeah it's it's kind of it, it's almost like Raiden is dealing with the hand-me-downs and I, I I don't know how how important it is I mean obviously it would become crucial to the character because you know a later game he's in is built entirely around the blade but it's very much like uh, he's not using it's like Solid Snakes his older brother but like his parents have finally decided to buy Raiden his own jumper now and he's not wearing, <laughs> you know, the kind of hand me down. And it's it's not just that. What what is it that happens to the title the, the title screen changes colour, I think, hmm. when you go back and it's him rather than Snake. So when when you first start the game, uh it's solid Snake's face on the title screen. When you've completed the game, the title screen the colour changes from red to blue and it's Raiden's face on the title screen now, not Snake's. So it's this kind of like, I don't know, he almost like takes ownership of the game after you've beaten it. And I think, mm. you know, the Katana is... Um, the the main thing about it for me is that it's a moment of fantastic catharsis. You know, this is a game about sneaking around, hiding in cardboard boxes. When the guards spot you, most of the time you're running away and hiding. And then suddenly you are just the kind of, you're the cyborg ninja, basically. I mean, it's kind of Metal Gear wish fulfillment in that sense. You're going around slicing things to bits left, right and centre. So it's, yeah, it, it always felt to me like that's the moment where it's like, okay, Raiden is this kind of, um, you know, he's a snake fanboy. Uh, that's one of the kind of jokes about him, right? He's He's Solid Snake's ultimate fan just like mm. anyone who bought Metal Gear Solid 2 is. And he spends the whole game wishing he was Solid Snake. And then when he actually gets his own gear, and it's different from Solid Snake's, it's actually pretty fantastic. So I, I always felt that was kind of like the moment where Raiden wins, in a way, or proves himself to the player, proves himself to himself. I don't know if I'm maybe thinking too much about that. And it's just, yeah, really notable to me that that went on to become the weapon that defined the character. Yeah, I think it represents the self-actualizing that that happens in his final arc as he, you know, decides that he's going to take control of what he passes on and what he thinks is important and, you know, um, abandoning the basically like the fake kind of foxhound uh, sort of like life and career he's been pursuing and you know, having his entire journey scripted for him by, you know, <laughs> a Patriot AI. I mean, you know, the details get muddy, but I think it's uh, I think it's there. The last thing I wanted to ask about, Rich, was, spoiler alert for Metal Gear Solid Five, but um, the Phantom Pain arguably does something very similar in terms of how it, you know, um, kind of reflects the player back at them, essentially, in terms of the, um, the playable character 
being a kind of like mirror image of Snake. I was wondering what you make of the uh, comparing the two, what you kind of think, and um, whether one game does it better than the other. Oh, oh dear. Uh, <laughs> Am I going to regret asking this? No, not at all. It's just it's it's very tough with Metal Gear Solid because I I do think Metal Gear Solid Five is kind of Kojima's masterpiece. I think the fact that people like say it's unfinished when it's called the Phantom Pain is kind of really funny. And I think in Metal Gear Five, he's making more of a point about the journey the player and Kojima Productions have been on and using the cyclical and evolving nature of that to return to his pet militaristic themes of the inevitability and futility of conflict, uh, the importance of making your own decisions within that context. It definitely feels like Metal Gear Solid 2 is kind of a dry run at that theme. And I, I do, I, I, I think Metal Gear, like you'd, you'd almost have to give the gong to Metal Gear Two just for doing it first, um, mm. because I agree they're very similar. I, I do think they're different, and I do think the, you know, the bait and switch in Metal Gear Five is hidden from you until the very, very end, uh, which is kind of a different way of doing it. And I do think it has a kind of, I do think there's a different point kind of underpinning Metal Gear 5 but yeah it's 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 funny really because you know Metal Gear 2 is about how these things are doomed to repeat themselves and you know as soon as you have a sequel the the expectations inherent in that are so restrictive of what you can actually make with it which is why he tried to make something you know as different as he could he Kojima himself said uh one of the reasons he was attracted to the theme of um you know, Snake and Raiden was that he didn't want to do another Metal Gear. Now, this would become the case with every Metal Gear Solid from here on out. You know, when he when he was making Metal Gear Solid Three, this will be my last Metal Gear. When he's making Four, definitely definitely my last Metal Gear. And then, you know, well, I guess Metal Gear Five really is his last Metal Gear. But Metal Gear Solid Two was about uh, that succession. You know, it was about here's what I hand on to you. You know, to the next great Konami director that will take this series forward. And I think Kojima saw his career going in a very different direction after Metal Gear Solid 2. And this was meant, in a way, as a farewell. I do think that. I do think Kojima would have liked to walk away from Metal Gear Solid at some point. And I think it was impossible for him to, not because he was being held back or anything. It's just like, if you're a creator, right? your company will back you to do one thing for five million or they'll back you to make Metal Gear Solid 3 and give you 40 million. I think you're going to make Metal Gear Solid 3. Mm. So it's almost like the golden handcuffs, I think, with Kojima. And I think one of the the most interesting things about him as a creator is there is this slight resentment at the series. You know, like there's this slight annoyance. So here we are again. It's Snake or someone who looks like Snake. I'm going to run you through these beats and add some fourth wall stuff to have a laugh about it. Don't really want to be here, but uh, I'm not going to make that too explicit. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think that's one of the reasons the games are so good is uh, you've got this kind of absolute galaxy-sized brain who he wants the freedom. 
he wants the production values he wants the kind of capacity to hire anyone who wants to make these games but it has to be a Metal Gear game and mm. Metal Gear Solid 2 is where you first feel him chafing at that very uh, very nicely put do you have any uh, anything you want to add Matthew on top of that that's quite probably quite a daunting place to be jumping. I feel like I haven't been able to contribute much to part two because I skipped it. <laughs> Not the part two of the podcast. I was obviously here for it. Um, but Ra- um, Wrapping up your Forza review in the background. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, just felt, <laughs> I just feel embarrassed that I kind of... Well, not embarrassed, but, you know, maybe the treat of this game is that you... It is still okay to connect with it on the level of, you know, you can shoot a tranquilizer dart into these nuts and it's funny. Yeah. Um. Oh, it definitely is. <laughs> it definitely is. And I, I felt that just playing it today, I was just like, oh, what a great little slice of Metal Gear the tanker is just going through it. And like, you know, the uh, the M9 is a, a just as a gun completely transforms Metal Gear as a series. I think it kind of mm. like it completely gives you a tool that changes the dynamic of how you play it. So um. I think that's fair. Shooting him in the nuts, Matthew. No, actually, you know, Matthew's kind of inadvertently, shall we say, probably made the most important point, which is that the reason these games persist is the they're just amazing places to play around in. And, you know, I think this is the game where the watermelons make their debut. Uh, there are bottles everywhere you can shoot. You mentioned the ice buckets you can tip over. And then the ice will come out, and then the ice will melt. Uh, there's flower sacks you can shoot, yeah, yeah. and the flower comes out, and that will show up like infrared beams and make guards sneeze. Like there's this one room in a part of the shell, which is, uh, or it might be the tanker actually, I forget now, where it's just like filled with everything they've got. It's just like, oh, here's the storage room, and it's just got tons of um, bottles, tons of watermelons, tons of all. Yeah, it's the tanker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you Classic when room. you go in. <laughs> He makes a guard come in. I don't know why I'm saying he, uh, obviously referring to Kojima. When you go in the first time, a guard will come in and he'll be like tired. So he leans up against the bit and just kind of goes to sleep. And like, you can sneak out or you can just say, oh, they've given me a guard to screw around with. You know, and it's like, that's that's what you do. You know, uh, you knock on the walls, make him walk around, shoot the flower, make him sneeze. You know, and yeah, the 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 real what what's what's the word for it? It's it's kind of childish almost. It's like testing something to see if it works, testing an interaction. The Metal Gear games have always been brilliant at like responding to that, like thinking ahead of how you might use an item and how you might expect it to react. And I think that goes into like overdrive in in Metal Gear Solid Two and it's one of the most fun things about it, you know, and you're absolutely right, Matt, is like you could spend all day talking about like how it predicted Mark Zuckerberg, but fundamentally, just as something in the hands, it's an enormous pleasure to play, and it's endlessly rewarding because whenever you think you can do something, you find out that they've got there ahead of you, and mm. and they've prepared you know the thing that will surprise and delight you, and that's one of the things that kept me coming back to this series and it's the thing that eventually made me adore this series i mean i realized today what a sick motherfucker i am when i was like shooting guards in both legs to see what they'd do 
um, while they had them like <laughs> held up with a gun. And like that is as much the essence of this game as the fucking Colonel AI losing his shit while you're naked in a tunnel on Arsenal gear. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, it's all part of the same thing. So um, oh, yes. we've all done it. I mean, in Metal Gear Five, I spent so much of my time just like as soon as I got the big boss blow up dolls that have the voice <laughs> command on them, I just set up like as many of them as I could have the enemies coming over and kind of run through them, punching them. It was, I don't know. I don't know why I find that amusing with the, with the music on, you know, but it's like so much of the pleasure of these games is the, the sandbox element, which is in Metal Gear Solid 2, even though you'd never describe it as a sandbox game. So that seems like a good place to wrap up then. Rich, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking through Metal Gear with us. If we, uh, maybe we'll do three at some point or the original Metal Gear Solid. I mean, I'd, you know, I feel, feel like I'm, I feel bad mining you for all of your good Metal Gear takes, but um, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about this. But uh, where can people find you on social media? I got, oh God, I can't remember my Twitter handle. Because <laughs> uh, there we are. Rich J. Stanton, that's me. My middle name is James. So Rich James. Rich J. Stanton, that's it. I'm glad I got that wrong. I don't want any new followers. Um, as, <laughs> as Matt uh, rightly pointed out on a previous episode i uh i used to have another twitter account uh and i i posted in a great exercise in vanity all of my rocket league goals i'm diamond three thanks but they all had music <laughs> on them and uh there was just this day where like i got like 400 copyright strikes at once there was obviously obviously the music industry just like switched on this bot and it was just like stay on target and i got zapped <laughs> Uh, Twitter would never reinstate my account, so uh, yeah. Well, this is basically what MGS2 is about, Rich. This is the fucking Patriots AI at work here, um, taking down your Rocket League goals. It, it, it knew that stuff was too powerful for the world to see. <laughs> exactly. People can find your work on PC Gamer too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I work for PC Gamer now. I love it. Uh, you can find me writing about absolutely everything from Garris body pillows to... Apple versus Epic filings. Wow. Gaming, just such a rich uh, tapestry. Yeah. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore pesto. No Rocket League goals on mine. <laughs> um, uh, own goals, maybe. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. No pressure, though. It's only if you've got time. It's fine. Um, we'll be back next week with an episode about the best games of 2011. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Bye. I stare at the stars and the sky up above and think, what am I?